Airbase is Perch, uh, and I'm here again with Joe. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, Perch. How are you? And I'm doing well. And and the cool part is we're here again with Jim. How are hey, you? I'm good. We got we couldn't uh, uh, cover enough last time. It seems yeah. in our first conversation. So uh, I, I, I want to say thank you for coming on again, talking some more. A lot of people really enjoyed that show, and I think it it, uh, it just your, your insight was great. And uh, this well, time thanks. we're going to get into. Uh, some other stuff. So this is great. Yeah. 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 I'm really excited to chat. It, it's so weird because so much of what I've done is sword and sorcery mm -hmm. and we barely talked about it last time, which is yeah. kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, what if we jumped into that? How did you get into like sword and sorcery, Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah. Like even before you started writing. Comics? Right. Are, so are either of you guys D and D people? Do you read fantasy stuff? Unfortunately, or, you know, yeah. Yeah, say lapsed. it's been a while. Oh, it's okay. been a little yeah. bit for me, but I was the uh, I was the the uh, founding member and first president of the Hofstra University Gamers. So, oh, yeah. awesome! <laughs> you know, but but yeah, like I, I've played um, you know a bunch of uh, D and D and other yeah, different sure. systems, GURPS, and yeah, yeah, all yeah, big kinds in college of college, and then then working yeah. life it. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I am a lifelong gamer. I've been playing since I was um, eight years old. So, and I know that very specifically because on the original um, Dungeons and Dragons red box, it says like 10 and up. And mm -hmm. my older brother was like, this is too old for you. You know, like, <laughs> cause that's what, that's what 12 year olds do. Right. Like yeah. Just yeah. their younger brothers or whatever. But it became honestly between that and, and fantasy novels and reading Conan comics, like, you know, sword and sorcery was really a really big part of my formative years. And, and then eventually the Marvel superhero stuff as well. But fantasy kind of predates a bunch of that in a lot of ways. And we, um, my brother and I really as dorky as it sounds, but it's not, it was our kind of shared way of communicating Four years. Doesn't seem like a big gap when you're older, but when eight and 12, it's like, yeah. he's almost a teenager. He doesn't want anything to do with me or whatever. And it was mm -hmm. like D and D was our shared way of spending time nice. and getting along with each other and my older cousins. And then eventually a lot of friendships through high school and into college and stuff like that. So uh, love tabletop role-playing games, lifelong nice. fan, been playing like crazy and um really voracious reader of of the novels and you know the comic stuff as well so it's like kind of baked into me now uh how much i love that stuff and yet you know the the fantasy comics kind of in north america have been kind of on and off over the years like sometimes oh, it does sure. pretty good and yeah. you know savage sort of conan and the original conan the barbarian series did well for quite a long time mm -hmm. But then after it star kind of faded, it you know, there wasn't a lot to take its place. Like, yes, there was Elf Quest and there were other sure. books and they were fine, but you wouldn't call them they weren't like world beaters, you know what I mean, in terms sure. of sales or whatever. Do you think um I, I'm curious because we just I just talked to uh Tom Krajewski a couple days ago and um we were talking about kid, kids into comics and everything else. Mm -hmm. and, and what I hear a lot from I think people our age and stuff, you know, at, I was the same way at eight you know, reading all the sci-fi books, big into the Star Wars books, all the yeah. novels that were, I was consuming all that. Um, I liked, uh, the funny part, the most fun part of Dungeons and Dragons for me was researching everything they could do more than playing. Like oh, I, so, yeah, the collector mentality. Yeah, yeah I, I just, I liked reading through all that and all that. And yeah. that's your, your path as well. I mean, that used to be a very common path for people to get into mm -hmm. comics at that age. And like, did, 
kind of in tra- chatting with him, did something happen in, in like the last 20 years where you don't seem um, to have that? I mean, I th- you know, I, I you could say there are similarities in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Like that was sure. a way in for a lot of people. Reading yeah. about the characters was was in some ways, I wouldn't say more than the books, but almost on the same level. Mm-hmm. Because particularly when trade paperbacks were not... Um, easily accessible or even, you know, a format in a lot of ways, you back issues were exorbitantly expensive to a kid being able to read like the official handbook was a way to kind of understand the broader Marvel universe. Right. Mm -hmm. And in that same way, I think I'm going to pull this back even a little bit further. I think there's a particular age where kids are obsessed with finding out the limits and the rules and codifying their world. Okay. So it's like at that age, you're either going to obsess over, uh, sports teams and all the different pieces and the stats, or you're going to obsess. You're not going to obsess over school, God forbid. Yeah, that's, so you're, that's you're, you've got to obsess over some fictional or some sort of you know <laughs> other element, right? <laughs> yeah. So you're gonna you're gonna know all the names of every Pokemon, or you're gonna know you know just that magic age where you need to understand and break it all down, right? Right. And for a lot of us, it was either you know the Handbook of the Marvel Universe, or it was video games, or it was tabletop games like D&D, or in some cases, combinations of them. Right. Your brain just sponges it up and needs to know more and just like can't get enough, you know, yeah. of that sort of stuff. And the world-building aspect of D&D and the fact that there is this intricate, look at all these places and look at all this stuff and look at all these things and they're like, I, you know, imagination generators yeah. that uh, get you thinking about big, big, cool things. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, yeah. I don't. Uh, what now let's address the elephant in the room here right. which is what'd you think of that dungeons and dragons cartoon from the 80s <laughs> so i mean it was interesting because <laughs> D D in the 80s was you know this weird mixture of satanic panic mm-hmm. where the parent groups were freaking out because it was going to you know get your kid into the dark arts or something yeah mixed with like really hokey merchandising Mm-hmm. And, and the corny cartoon. Yeah. I didn't like the cartoon in the sense of like the stories were very silly and dorky and whatever. Yeah. But I liked that I knew what Dungeons and Dragons was. And I it's mm. like I wanted it to be more than what yes. it was. I wanted yeah, it to exactly. be cooler and darker. And it was when we played it, or at least mm-hmm. in my head it was, you know, yeah. in the novels and all those things. I think that you've also got to keep in mind, you know, we are in this golden age of nerdity where everyone knows all these superheroes and all these things. But back then there was this desperation just for acknowledgement that this stuff is sure. a big deal. And I use a hanging yeah. air quotes here, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the Batman movie coming out was so transformative for a lot of us at that age, because it was like, everyone knew Batman. Everyone was excited about Batman again for the first time since it felt like since the sixties, you know? Yeah. Um, and so D and D being quote in the mainstream, and not just for uh, uh, you know religious groups flipping out that it was going to take you to Satan's bosom yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I feel you know that was a good thing. You know the fact sure. that I could buy Dungeons and Dragons video games for my Commodore sixty four. Sure. The yeah. fact you know there were action figures and all that stuff. That was the cool part of it for me. That was the interesting part of it for me. And you always kind of yeah. wanted to tune into that cartoon, hoping this was going to be the episode where the kids are just brutally murdered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It, never like, you, it would be interesting because it's like uh, maybe this is different 
for for Americans. But I, so I'm a Canadian, and there's this running gag that anytime Canada gets mentioned in any pop culture whatsoever, we just get excited because it's like people remember we exist. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. it's like they say literally something, even if it's demeaning. It's like in South Park, they're making fun of Canadians and saying that we all have pop top heads, and we're like Canada, yay! They <laughs> said a represent. So it's like watching the D and D cartoon. It was like, oh, they said a spell I recognize. Yay! They said yeah. magic yeah. missile or something like. Like that's good enough. Because <laughs> <laughs> a few years after uh, that, you had the uh, Conan the Adventurer cartoon. Yeah, I was yeah. already too old, kind of, for it yeah. by that point. Like, I oh. read the Conan novels, obviously yeah. the Robert E. Howard stuff and the in some of the the satellite stuff that they did later. And I was voraciously reading the comics, and those yeah. were cool. Savage Sword was that Forbidden Fruit where they got to be extra violent, and yeah. every so often there would be a booby, and you'd be like, "Oh my god." I'm in the promised land. You just, you know. Yeah, it was great. great. What yeah. about the uh, the? Did did you like the movies with with Arnold Schwarzenegger? I did. So it's interesting now because obviously, so I I write Conan the Barbarian now, yeah. and so I'm a lot more of a I loathe to use the term scholar, but I'm a lot more of a, a knowledgeable about the canon and stuff like sure. that. And the movie Conan is not the literary Conan or the comic book Conan. Um, not at all. They no. take a lot of different bits and pieces from other Robert E. Howard stories mixed with sort of John Milius's like raw, raw, you know, let's kick some ass stuff. Yeah. And it is a very compelling, very entertaining movie. Um, they do the smart thing where they're, you know, those iconic lines where the riddle of steel and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. what is best in life. Those are not from any, our Robert E. Howard book or comic yeah. or that Roy Thomas did or anything, but they, they become branded into pop culture so strong and Arnold's visage has been, you know, branded into pop culture so strong in, in good and bad ways in the sense that, you know, the Arnold isms, people assume that, that Conan is, is more, um, how's it like, that he's not, you know, smart or, or he doesn't have the same amount of God that he's just this lumbering monster kicking ass. Yeah. And it's like in the books, you know, Conan becomes a king by his own hands because he's incredibly intelligent. He is instinctive and he is, um, but he's got, he becomes quite book learned in the books and he learns multiple languages and he understands other cultures and he's able to motivate people and become a leader. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's, that's the, that's the yeah. canon in the books and they don't touch upon any of those things because in the Milius movie, they give him this slave background, which he doesn't have in the books, which is actually kind of pieces taken from King Cull and mm -hmm. they've sort of messed them all together and mushed them with a bunch of other stuff. And so it's a, to answer your question, it's a mm -hmm. really compelling movie. I really enjoyed it as a kid because it felt like the most D and D movie I'd ever seen. Yeah. Particularly because they're a bunch of like mercs, you know, uh, uh, thieves breaking into the temple, stealing the gem, kill the big snake, kick yeah. ass. That's yeah. a D and D campaign to me. You know it's what a I mean? Yeah. Heist. Yeah. 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 It's a heist. And so to me, that was, it was almost like it was a really cool D and D movie more than it was a Conan movie. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and I, I love that film and I think it's really fun. It's got just the most bombastic soundtrack yeah. and it, it's all ass kick, you know, and, and it's a pop culture kind of footprint can't be denied. Right. So yeah. I'm thrilled that it exists. And yet once you start writing Conan, the first thing anyone will say, you're like, Hey, what are you working on right now? Oh, Conan the Barbarian. And they're like, yeah, the riddle of steel. And you're like, yes, 
<laughs> but you know, like, <laughs> yeah, that is part. Of, but I don't like that's. So are you going to answer the riddle of steel? Like, no, that's not actually a thing. Like, it's cool. I like it. But I know. miss the movies. Yeah. I miss the fantasy movies back then because they they did seem to none of none of them took themselves that seriously. It was it was. Well, they didn't have the budget to take themselves. Yeah, well, I, no, there's something <laughs> charming about that. I, now it's such big business. You like, you, I love going. To, yeah, I loved going to the video store and they would get like, you know, Boris Vallejo and these other fantasy artists to do these just amazing airbrushed yeah. yes. uh, video covers. And you're like, holy crap. And then you watch the film and you're like, ooh, paper mache monsters. All yeah. right, let's do it. You know? Yeah. It was, uh, it was the current cover gimmick scheme. But yeah, yeah, know, yeah. It was yeah. in video, right? It was like yeah, on yeah. video games as well. And mm-hmm. you'd see those Atari covers and they'd have beautifully painted images. And then you play the thing and it's just big fat squares smashing yep. into each other or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And like that, the cover, like that first uh, Mega Man game on Nintendo, where it's, like, <laughs> it's a guy in like a suit and it has yeah. nothing to do with, no. yeah. with, with it's Mega amazing. Man. But um, yeah, since, since we're on this topic anyway, and like you said, you're a, a scholar of, of Conan, uh, <laughs> for ish but enough that you could probably answer this question uh there might be people who are listening to this who are like i know conan i've seen the movie i've done all that where what's a good place to jump in uh, uh, other than what you're working on right right. what in like the past i mean because now marvel is putting out omnibuses and epic collections of all the old stuff so where's a good place for someone to jump in and and get so And I mean this in all honesty, Conan is way easier to get into than any superhero book. Yeah, Like Uh, like way, way easier because there's basically three different eras that tend to encompass the character. You've got when he's young and kind of impetuous, troublemaking, Mm -hmm. you know, this is like, uh, uh, you know, a frost giant's daughter and God in the bowl and those kinds of uh, Robert E. Howard stories. You've got him kind of in his prime uh, going on these big epic adventures and, and uh, you know, uh, queen of the black coast and all this sort of stuff. And then you've got him as the King, like mm-hmm. Phoenix on the sword and all these other, uh, um, you know, epic tales of King Conan. Those are really at those three eras. And most writers will fall into one of those three kind of lane ways. They'll mm-hmm. tell cool stories. They'll put him in different places in the Hyborian age. Uh, bring on, bring on the threat, whether that's a man or a monster, or a God or a spirit and, and let's kick some ass. Like, let's make it epic and put, you know, put the thumb screws on Conan and make things hard for him. Like it's really classic, pulpy, awesome adventure. Mm-hmm. And most of the stories, you know, carry forward in a broader sense, but there's not like a hardcore in-depth continuity. Right. Yeah. So Roy Thomas will, you know, he has written more stories than anyone else, more than Robert and and more than, you know, any other writer. So he'll reference some of his older stuff. But in that classic comic book way, as soon as he references something, he always gets you up to speed on, mm-hmm. you know, what, what the motivation was or, oh, these two characters, they've been in capers before and now they hate each other. Ta-da! Like, that's all you need to know. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and it's something I, I try and aspire to in my own comic work where it's like, have an, a thread of continuity but never leave people behind if they haven't read it, you know? Yeah. And, and so as dorky as it sounds, you can pick up the first Conan the Barbarian omnibus and enjoy it thoroughly, or you can grab whatever, three, four, five. You're not really going to get pushed out. Savage yeah. Sword is the same thing. I think Savage Sword's a, a more beautiful book because mm-hmm. the black and white artwork seems to bring out the best in so many artists. You know, yeah. John Buscema is the, the classic, but like Ernie Chan and, and like 
dozens of other artists, for some reason, when you unhinged and just said, do whatever you want in this black and white space, they just seemed to go buck. And I don't know if they were given more time or more money, but they put the most intricate detailed line work into those stories. And because they, it was going to be a magazine on the newsstands and they could get a bit gorier and a bit more intense, they did so. And mm -hmm. so it feels like it kind of took the chains off and they really went to town. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like yeah. grab for Savage Sword Omnibus and you can't do any wrong. What's nice about it is Roy and the crew will, they'll adapt some of the classic stories, but then they'll insert their own stories as well. And you can't tell most of the time, like most of the time they're, they're just great classic, you know, pulp sword and sorcery stuff through and through. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I like. I, I agree with you. I, I mean, a lot of people would come into Conan, and in one of the shops that I owned, I think had a uh, the audience. It, it it fit the demographic uh, right. very well that really really liked Conan. It was that was one of the more popular titles there, and there was never any conversation about uh, when is a good jumping on point. Right, like, right. I must have gone years. I never heard that. No, um, you, you look at the cover. Does that look cool? Grab yeah. that one. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Most of the stories are one, two, two parters are rare. Three parters are rarer in those old books. Like a lot of them are done in ones. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or they'll have a, a satisfying chunk of adventure that carries forward to the next one. But again, you could have picked up part two and just be like, oh man, You're I got to go. Yeah, yeah. Everything's, you know. And, I, and that's that's very much in a classic storytelling model that I feel like we've lost when, yeah. when, when too many writers uh, write for the trade. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, yeah, it's it's funny because we talked about it a little bit last time, and then I went back and I, I read a, a bunch of your your work and just different pieces. Okay. And what's interesting is you, you there's not this sense of I don't know the best way to put it, but like falsely is saying, Hey, now's, now's when you come into this book. There's not this, like you, you, it, it feels like you could just read the title. You, I think either writers overthink it or they get kind of obsessed with this idea of like, I've got to make this a good jumping on point. Right. It, it feels very uh, jagged as a result. It and, can, I, you know, for me, it's because I'm taking a lot of my influences from the eighties books that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And I know it's a running gag and, and, some of the old timers will roll their eyes, you know, the gym shooter, any issue is someone's first. Mm -hmm. And when you read old Claremont X-Men back to back to back, it can make your eyes roll because every issue they're telling you about the Ruby quartz visor and, you know, adamantium bones and all that stuff. But on the other hand, man, oh man, is it really easy to know, you know, what the score is and what everyone needs to do and how they care about each other or don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. And oh. so for me, I kind of go in with a bit of that model. And, yeah. and for better or for worse, a lot of times I haven't been given a number one at Marvel. So if I come in on champions number 19, it ain't, it ain't number one. You know what I mean? So part mm -hmm. of my job is to move the ball forward and get you up to speed on what's different but also carry the baton, you know what I mean? And move, yeah. move to the next goal with it. Right. It doesn't, you're, you're, it consistently is. And it, it really did feel like the 80s, your stuff doesn't grind to a halt in order to almost like stop the bus. Okay. Everybody right. get on and then we'll get going again, yeah. but you lose all the momentum. And that, that's what Claremont. Yeah. You do. When you read this stuff, you're like, how many times I'm going to have to hear about the. Ruby sure. Ruby. Sure. But, but it doesn't blow up the story. Like you, you don't, no. 
you don't stop. It's it's like a one dialogue and then you're moving on. And right, right. And and uh, if you do it well, you can be relatively elegant about it, or you can, yeah. you know, what you want to avoid is what we jokingly call, as you know, you know, yeah. when two characters know each other, they go, as you know, you know, Scott, blah blah blah, and they would never do that in the X Men comics. I'm just saying whatever Scott yeah, Summers, yeah. but in 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 really hokey comics where characters are telling each other things they already know, you've got to frame it in such a way. Or, or bring a touchstone character in, or have something, some observer, or some way of informing the reader in, in an interesting fashion. So a perfect example I think of is um, one of my absolute favorite issues of Uncanny X-Men. It's like in the midst of Fall of the Mutants, Alan Davis drew it, and it's that Wolverine and Sabretooth battle that happens yep. in the mansion. Yeah. And Psylocke is joined the, the mansion, and the first chunk of the book is her psychic presence moving through the house. And so she is talking about everyone's stuff. Their yep, power, the of what happened with Mutant right, Massacre. And, their, yep. their motivations, what their fears are, because she can pick up on their emotions and their mental state. And it's like checking in with everybody, and it's all stuff that you as a regular reader know. But damn if it's not compelling. You know, yeah. damn yeah. if it's not elegant done because she's also framing it in her opinions of these characters. So mm-hmm. you're getting a new piece of information and you're catching everyone up to speed, right? It's, and and yeah, that's the trick. You've got to find a way to do the thing. So like my um, second issue of Uncanny Avengers, when I took over from Jerry, um, Scarlet Witch joined the team. Love mm-hmm. Wanda. She's one of my favorite characters. I uh, would love to do more stuff with her. And um because she was entering the dynamic of the team that put everyone on edge and they were all reacting to her and she's getting up to speed on how the team has been functioning up to that point. And so it's not the same, obviously, but it serves the same purpose. Everyone has to let Wanda know, or she has to observe something. And therefore now, you know, that for example, the human torch and rogue had a relationship and now they're on the rocks and it's not good. Or, you know, Quicksilver, uh, you know, and his dynamic and of course that's her brother and how are they getting along or not getting along and, and Dr. Voodoo and all these other characters, you know, Janet Van Dyne's there, but rogue is the leader of the team, but Janet's more experienced and is a legacy chairwoman of the Avengers and is trying not to be the leader, but can't help but fall back into those old patterns. You know what I mean? Yep. And it's like, those are the fun kind of sparks and dynamics that I loved in the books and trying to frame those and build those. I love team books. Like mm-hmm. I, I love the dynamics of them. I love that every time you think that there's nothing new to do. You just have to change up the chemistry of, of those characters. And now you've got plot, you've got potential, you know? And I feel like it's where I wouldn't have imagined this when I started in the business, but it's where I I feel most comfortable is, is, is creating sparks off those teams. You know what I mean? Um, and, and it's weird because if you would have asked me, and if you ask me now, my favorite books at Marvel and the books I would love to do, they're almost all solo titles mm-hmm. uh, because that's what I grew up on. And those are some of my favorite characters. And I'm sure I would do a good job, but for whatever reason, um, my editors have figured out like, you know what, Jim's good at team dynamics. So mm-hmm. kind of plug him in there. And it's like, I, I was never grudging about it. It was just like, I kind of have learned to love it because of all the well. potential. I mean, yeah. your, your background in, in playing Dungeons and Dragons and dealing with a party dynamic and all right. the rest, I think there's a connection there. Perhaps. There is, there is. So, yeah. so rolling it back to D&D is kind of really interesting, actually. 
Dungeons and Dragons, you know, is about a team dynamic, exactly that. And after my brother went off to university, I became the dungeon master. I became the game master on all the games that my friends and I were playing. And the enjoyment I had setting up scenarios and then watching that interplay and, and the, the improv that happens as people are making decisions. You know, the best role-playing games are the ones where the players do something insanely unexpected, but in yep. the moment they do it, it feels like the right thing that should have always yeah. happened. And a good story is like that too, that you want to take the readers in an unexpected direction. And the minute they read it, they go, what? And then they go, yeah, but it couldn't have gone any other way. But you've surprised them. You know what I mean? And so role-playing games taught me so much about entertainment. They taught me a lot about improv. They taught me about um, taking the ingredients that you've got and making the most of them in that moment. Right. And that's what working in a sandbox like the Marvel Universe is like, if we're going to be honest, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and just even making the most of any ingredients. Like my first job at Marvel was not a an incontinuity book. Um, I had, you know, tried to get in at Marvel several times. I actually did work at DC before I did at Marvel. Yeah, as you a did. So I did. um the first opportunity I got at DC was uh, I had been doing Skull Kickers for a little while, and then I did that Pathfinder book at Dynamite, mm-hmm. and that got me like I wasn't like huge prestige or anything, but they were you know monthly books and they were coming out on time and they looked good and everything else. It's the like new building f- up a portfolio of right, work. right, it's yeah. amazing concept, it was yeah. bonkers. Yeah, um, and the New Fifty Two had launched, and one of the things internally they wanted to do was get back to. The books had to be monthly, yeah. So you could not be late because uh, Dan Didio had promised retailers the books would not be late for at least a year or some. I don't mm-hmm. think he framed it like that. Like a, you know, don't quote. No, me, I, that was kind of yeah. the promise. Now nobody believed it, or sure. frankly, I think would have held him to it. But that's a different. But story. internally, yeah. they were building the classic yes. structure. So one of the things they used to do were inventory issues, and it's funny I have to explain this, but <laughs> but they were a thing where you would have these done in one issues that were done by yeah. different creative teams. And if the book was not going to come out on time, the regular monthly issue, you could slot in one of these inventories. And it's the reason why when you look at some of the old trades and you see what's reprinted, there'll suddenly be a gap in the numbers. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why is that issue not in there? Because it was an inventory. It didn't follow the yeah. regular continuity and stuff like that. Yeah. And not that inventory issues are bad. Some of them can be amazing. No, I, think, really. I think it's helpful, actually. Yeah. I, I think it can be helpful. But, yeah. but it's also a really good testing ground for editors and publishers to see people's chops, you know, to mm-hmm. see what they're capable of. And so I was asked to do, um, I'm trying to think of the editor's name. I want to say Pat McCallum. He mm-hmm. asked me to do, because I had been doing Skull Kickers, and Skull Kickers was about these morally reprehensible, you know, bastards in this fantasy world causing trouble. He asked me to do an inventory pitch for Suicide Squad, a bunch mm-hmm. of morally, you know, reprehensible whatevers. And so I pitched a bunch of concepts at him, and he uh, liked a couple of them, and then got me to write a script for him. Um, and it, I tried to be really ambitious. This is my first big two work, and I poured my heart into that thing and the structure i came up with was uh it's dead shot and there's 20 minutes until something mm-hmm. explosive is going to happen and it's a minute per page and so it's going to be this countdown to disaster and it's going to yep. be all about the momentum and all this kind of stuff with a with a counter in the corner um 
And, and I wrote the thing and he really liked it and I got paid for it. And I thought, woohoo, I'm in the driver's seat. It's going to happen now. And for a little while there at DC, I was being asked to pitch on a bunch of different stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the time, um, they were doing what's called a bake-off. So a bake-off is when you get multiple writers pitching on books. Sometimes they tell you, sometimes they don't. And, you know, I was sort of middle of the pack. So I would throw an idea in there and they were like, that's cool. Unfortunately, we went another direction. You know, Mm -hmm. that happened two or three times. And it's not all bad. Like, of course, it's, um, you know, you feel crappy because you, in your head, you want to be the writer of fill in the blank. But but it's a good way to test yourself and to, and sure. to figure things out. And pitching sure. is, is valuable. Learning to pitch well is valuable. And know? it's a, it's it, I mean, it could be worse. They could do it in public and have people vote on it on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. just kidding. I'm just kidding. I feel bad, honestly, for all the creative teams, like, in the public square. That's tough. That's a really yeah. tough place to be. I don't, I don't envy anyone that... For that sure. Yeah, you know, going through the 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 grinder on that because yeah. it's already stressful enough to put together those pitches, and you can't do a good book if you don't put some of yourself into it. You yeah, know, yeah. there's a saying yeah. where you're like, "Well, you can't you you can't let take it personally," and you're like, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> and yeah, yet, that, that concept doesn't work. You can't you can't divorce yourself completely emotionally. If I didn't care work. about it. Why am yeah. I here? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Why am I pitching on these characters or doing, you know, and, and even for me, when I'm pitching, if I'm asked to pitch on a particular concept, my first thing I need to do is go research and learn to love it, like find an angle that's going to work for me. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, you're just going to get pablum, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. And so I pitched some stuff at, at DC. Eventually, um, Bobby Chase uh, came back to me. This is a good year into the new 52. And they asked me uh, to pitch on Birds of Prey, which had been running right from the start. Mm-hmm. And I pitched on Birds of Prey. Um, I had the book for a few months and was writing on it, and it got announced. And then plans changed. And there was a lot of tumultuous stuff going on at DC at that point. And this was about as frenzied as it got in the midst of the new 52. And a lot of people got kind of ground into powder against the wheels of change around there. And I got just absolutely crushed through and spit out the other side. And so all of a sudden I wasn't doing DC stuff anymore. And um, it was honestly like, like heartrending because I thought, I was on the upswing of my writing career and now I'm not. And there's a certain number of people in the industry. And I don't think it's all intentional. When you're doing big two work, there's a prestige that comes with it. And there's a, Hey, be my friend ism that comes with it. Mm-hmm. And when you're not, they're not, Yep. you know, and all of a sudden as, as dorky as it sounds, you're like, you find out who your real friends are. Yep. And that's, I think that's true of any industry. I think that's true of music and acting and, 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 whatever you know definitely true yeah creative industries right when you're hot people want to know you and when you're not they're like oh yeah whatever and that's fine right like it was just the sort of nature of the thing i learned very very early on um i did do a couple more things at dc uh hank canals was in the digital department and he really liked those articles that i was starting to write about how to break into comics how to write your own stuff how to pitch uh, some of the the financial stuff that I was starting to post by that point. And he reached out and asked me to do a Legends of the Dark Knight story. 
Mm-hmm. And so I've, I, I got to write Batman. That was pretty great. Yeah. Uh, Neil Gouge drew it. Uh, I'm super proud of that story. I absolutely love it. I'm very, very proud of it. The day it came out, it was on DC Digital. Uh, Paul Dini contacted me because it was a Harley Quinn story. And he said, you know, you did right by Harley. And I was just like, holy. Yeah, that's a nice. That's, you know, that's could, nice. Could, could, add a, could I have gotten a higher compliment, right? Like it yeah, was the yeah. best feeling. And particularly when I, I felt pretty battered off of the other DC stuff, I was like, oh, this is okay. I'm not dead yet. You know what I mean? But I definitely felt like I was um, in a weird state where I didn't know my future. And I was kind of wondering if, if I was kind of on my way out of comics. Um, I had been talking to IDW about another project. And then when the DC opportunity came up, I basically said, I need to focus on this completely. So that IDW thing passed me by. And then I kind of came back hat in my hand, like got anything else. And um, they actually said, we're doing a bake off for uh, Samurai Jack. We've got the we've got the lights of Samurai Jack hasn't been announced yet. We're looking for pitches, uh, but you're gonna have to hand it in fast. We're literally deciding next week, and so I had like three days to pull together a pitch for Samurai Jack. I watched some of my favorite episodes. I dug in over that weekend, wrote the pitch in like less than forty eight hours, sent it on, and mine was the one that Cartoon Network picked. Nice. So uh, all of a sudden, I you know, uh, and Andy Suriano, who is one of the designers on the show, was drawing it, and and it was a, a relatively like it wasn't like a huge announcement, but it was like a oh man, this kind of came out of nowhere, and there's so much love for that show from a, that demographic, and people were kind of freaking out, and it kind of brought me back to life in terms of my career. People were like, oh, Jim's doing some stuff, and and literally the day it was announced, like a bunch of. DC and Marvel editors got in touch with me and they were like, Hey man, how's it going? And I was just like, what? Okay. I guess I'm not dead yet. You know, like I'm mm-hmm. still on the, on the table. And then your friends all come back to borrow your <laughs> and things. Not, not like, exactly. I mean, like I hey. said, I've, I've got lots of friends in comics. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It's yeah, not like yeah. I'm, no, like I'm, I'm weeping I'm, in the corner or some stuff, but it was just like, you know, there's, there's certain. Yeah. I don't know how else to put it in. It's every industry. It's definitely, it's uh, it's amazing how many people are are around to help you celebrate when things are going well. Absolutely. You know, (laughs) what are they, what, yeah, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan, right? Yes, exactly. You know, I I am curious, so since you mentioned the the Suicide Squad um, inventory story. Yes. How did you feel about it being released like all those years later <laughs> so here's I, i'll, I'll kind of get you caught up on that because that's a weird one mm-hmm. so the suicide squad story you know sat in a drawer and what would happen was every few years there would be a new suicide squad editor and they would get all the material mm-hmm. and the real keeners would read all the stuff that they had in the drawer yeah the digital drawer whatever you want equivalent and I kept getting contacted and they were like, this script is great. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, we should do it. I'm like, cool, you should do it. And then it would be like flatline, like I wouldn't hear anything from them. Um, or they would contact me and they go, did we pay for this? And I'm like, yes, it's all paid for. It's yours. You should do something with it. And they were like, cool. And then nothing would happen. And then Brian Cunningham um, took over the series when they were going to do the launch with Jim Lee when the movie was coming out. Right. And he was the, I'm pretty sure the book had a more than monthly ship schedule. 
it was yep. like aggressive because Suicide Squad. It was sort of like the yeah, big it, hope for DC at that point. You're like, right. It wasn't a double shit, but it was close to it. it right, was, right. It was doing that. Yeah. Kind of and and Brian was like terrified that the book was going to ship late because, you know, you've got all this high end prestige and whatever. And he said, I love this inventory issue. I would love to, um, you know, put it on the schedule. And I was like, dude, Suicide Squad's hot as hell. I would be overjoyed. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. would be amazing. And so we talked back and forth about the artist with the most kinetic uh, look. And we mm-hmm. both agreed Trad Moore's like the kinetic guy. Like he's just got this yep. incredible momentum to his artwork and everything feels like it's moving even when they're standing still. And I was like, that would be ideal. Um, Andy Curry, who was the assistant editor on Suicide Squad, contacted me and we jammed back and forth. And he's like, you're a better writer now than you were then. Do you want to change it up? And I was like, actually, yeah. It would be nice if Dead uh, Deadshot had someone to jam with and so I added Harley to the story mm-hmm. and all the interplay just got that much better. So instead of one silent guy kicking ass, it was like her commenting and the way that they go about a mission and, and the contrast made it really fun. And the yeah. script was even better for it. Um, they hired Trad to do the issue. He drew the living hell out of it. It was absolutely stunning. We were all just kind of blown back by it. And then it got buried and they didn't use it. And I was just absolutely crushed uh, at the book. Got I don't mean to laugh. It's just, Oh man, I know it's, it was hilarious, like, but it got thrown in a drawer again, this time lettered and colored and finished. And I was just like, Holy crap. And um, you know, I asked around about it and didn't get clear answers. And then eventually heard through the grapevine. They were like, yeah, it's just not, you know, Trad's artwork is so out there. And, you know, now in the story, the characters aren't quite, you know, at the same point they were then, and it doesn't fit anymore. And I was like, okay, whatever. Yeah, you know? I mean, nobody likes Trad more. Whenever yeah. he does everything, they're like, ah, I hate this guy. This so, stuff is so boring. Well, anyways, and, you know, and he's this prestige artist. And I'm thinking, yeah. man, just having a Trad Moore book is such a joy for me. I bought a page from the, the issue and I, I kept it hidden because no one even knew the issue existed. Yeah, I've got it in my office, right? So, um, but what happened was the big upheavals and changes at, at DC came about and, um, you know, Mary Javins took over and uh, Batman Black and White came out and that first issue's got Trad Moore in it. And I started laughing because I was like, well, clearly they're okay with Trad Moore. They put him in their first issue. Like they made a big, you know, to do of it. So I, I sent a blind email to editorial and just said, you guys know you have a, a Trad Moore issue sitting in a drawer, right? Like done, ready to go. You can just print money anytime you want it. And um, I don't know if it was because of that, but I guess they did some more digging and they found five, six issues complete in drawers Mm-hmm. That they could make that miniseries out of called um, what was it? Let them live. Let them live. Yeah. That mm-hmm. they released, and I, mine was the first issue. So mm-hmm. yes, uh, many many years later, my Suicide Squad <laughs> story came out. It was a it, really good issue, though. And, thank I, you. and I, people always yeah. say, like, oh, I'm you're super you're, proud of it. Actually, yeah, yeah no, I, I enjoyed it's, it. It's fun. I feel like when you talk to you're interviewing people, you're always very complimentary. I mean, one, I'm not a dick, but also it was a good issue. Like you pick it up, it was a good issue. I. I'm, I, again, I'm not being backseat driver here, but like they could have put this out at any time. It's Anytime. got, it, it was a classic inventory issue. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it was it, meant to fit in between anywhere. Yeah. It would, it could have, you could have thrown that in into an annual and, and yep. shipped it that way. Yeah. If anything, I, I, 
I'm, I'm very torn because I like the idea of pulling these comics out of the drawer and letting people see mm-hmm. them. I, I'm really fond of that idea. I hated the way they marketed it. And I'm not, I'm not, by the way, no, no, no I, 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 I don't have any control of any of that stuff. Let right? them live. Like the, the, it almost, it lowered the expectation of what was sure. really good books. I would hear from people like, well, this is remnant work. It's like, no, it's, it's, it's Zub and Trent Moore on this. Right. Book. Like this is what a made remnant me la- what laugh was a bunch of people thought it was brand new. So yeah. they were like, oh, does this mean you're taking over suicide squad? <laughs> and I was like, no, dude, I wrote that years ago. And they go, no, no, I know. Yeah, yeah, and the Sentry was a character created by Stan Lee. Sure, Jim. No, I was yeah, like, no, yeah. really? Like, I really did do this way back in the day. Like, that no, is a very, a very old script, you know. And uh, my first big two work, hilariously. Um, <laughs> and so I was doing stuff at IDW. Um, I ended up doing uh, 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 the Dungeons and Dragons comic series that I've been doing ever since. And the funniest part about that was the way D&D came about was hilarious. Uh, Ted Adams, who's one of the owners of IDW at the time, he sees me at a convention and he comes over the table and we're having a great conversation. And he says, Samurai Jack is one of my favorite comics we publish. I want you to do more work for us. And I'm like, twist my rubber arm. Yeah. I go, yeah, that would be great. And he goes, of the books we have, what interests you? And I was like, honestly, turtles or Dungeons and Dragons. And he goes, well, Kevin Eastman's coming back. And no offense, that guy's got priority. Um, but D&D, really? I was like, D&D, really? Like, I'm obsessed with D&D. I absolutely love mm-hmm. this stuff. And at, you got to keep in mind at the time, this is before 5th edition D&D launches. Mm-hmm. 4th edition is really contentious amongst the fan base of, of mm-hmm. Dungeons & Dragons. People yep. love it or hate it. Uh, yeah. But the sales by the end were, were very low on the yeah. game. So it was not considered a dead license, but it was certainly like IDW had, I think it's called the master license for like, you know, Hasbro. So they had Transformers and GI Joe and My Little Pony and oh yeah, D&D is thrown in, you know, along with Gem and the Holograms and all other stuff. And so they had the rights to do it, but they weren't currently doing any D&D books uh, and they were in no rush to do them either. Um, so I said, look, there's a new edition that's in development because I'm a big tabletop nerd. I'm keeping up on this stuff. If you're going to launch the book, now's the time to do it again. Like you got to try. And Ted was like, look, man, like I said, I really want you to do more stuff for us. I'll set up a conference call. Let's, let's talk to them. And so I got on the line with wizards of the coast and we just chatted and they very quickly realized I was as big a gaming nerd as I was a comic nerd. And they were very excited about having me on board. And they um, talked about the fact that in the future, they hoped there would be more Baldur's Gate video games because those were really, really big sellers, but that they were purposefully kind of leaving the city of Baldur's Gate alone so it could be its own thing in their role-playing books. And they said, you can use that as your playground as long as you don't change anything major. And I was like, yeah, man, cool capers and heists and get to use some fan favorite characters from games that have sold millions of copies while the new edition of D&D is coming out. Yes, sir. Like, I'm down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we launched that book within a month of D&D 5th edition launching. And now, you know, that was 2014. Like, here we are seven years later. Dungeons & Dragons has never been bigger. It's bigger than it was in the 80s. It's bigger when it was at any point in history, their their latest demographic things that they publicly show say that they have 50 million active players. 
mm-hmm. active, like in their community, retweeting, watching streams, heavily into to the merchandise, heavily buying the books. Like every single source book is selling millions of copies. It is wild, absolutely wild time for Dungeons and Dragons. And tabletop role-playing game has, you know, all ships have risen off of its mm-hmm. success. Yeah. And the hilarious part is now so many people in the industry are like, how do I get on this rocket ride? Because <laughs> I lucked out. My editor at IDW, John Barber, is an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. He was never a tabletop guy. So he and I know each other quite well, and he was doing a great job managing the book. But all he was managing was like, is the stuff coming in on time? Is it approved from the licensor? I started to interface directly with Wizards of the Coast because we were talking the same language. We're talking about real deep nerd stuff about the books. And so eventually, it's not that I was cutting John out. We were just jumping on conference calls directly with Wizards every time I wanted to do something cool or different. And the Wizards people kind of built up an amount of trust and respect with me. And then they started hiring me directly to do other consulting. So I started doing other writing and development for them. I've done like... um, you know, media proposals and, and, and all kinds of stuff that is not front facing. You know, it's always kind of had that, that culture though. Um, yeah. If they find somebody that they can talk directly to, they just prefer it. And, yeah. And, and they're great. Like, and I love them over there. They're like, like family now. Um, I ended up going to the office for a full week and basically helping them develop one of their source books. They do this really smart thing called a story push Mm-hmm. Every major project they do, they don't want to be so insular that they're always getting the same opinions. So they'll hire an outside author, usually a fantasy author or whatever, just to come in and jam with them mm-hmm. to, to, to mix up things at the table. And so they, it was like my turn. Like they called me up and asked if I wanted to come in and they paid me this consulting fee and flew me out. And it was amazing because every day we'd be in the office brainstorming cool stuff and then every night we'd grab dinner and then stay up late chatting all of our memories playing the games and and you know just kind of digging below the surface and getting to know each other in ways that you can't it's hard to to describe do you know what i mean oh yeah and that i've got friends who work there and uh uh, you, you know the, the the downside, at least in the in, as it was, is you know you're going to glorious Renton, right? Is- oh yeah, it is out of the city. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was staying at a hotel that was like two blocks away from the office. And oh it's yeah, like you you are not getting downtown. You are you are off in this little you yeah, know you wherever the hell you, you are. You have an IKEA nearby, I think. Yes, That's yes. Yeah. Um, but those conversations have turned into so many other projects. Like yeah. one of the things we talked about was me starting to play D&D when I was eight years old and why the game grabbed my uh, imagination. And so like eight or nine months later, Adam Lee, who's one of the heads of story over there, he contacts me. He says, we're working with another publisher at Random House to produce these this project for kids like these we don't know what it's going to be yet. Some sort of a way to bring kids into D&D. And all I could remember was that conversation where you said why at eight years old it was the perfect mm-hmm. you know, thing. Can I get you on the phone with Random House to talk about why eight-year-olds love D&D? And I was like, sure. And by the end of the conversation, it was, I don't want you to pay me a one-time consulting fee to tell you why D&D is cool. I want to run this project. Like This is like, oh, nice. feels like coming full circle. And so... 
um, my friend Andrew and my wife Stacy and I, we are now the writers of these things called the Dungeons and Dragons Young Adventurers Guides. And it's currently a six book series at Random House. Uh, and they've been amazing uh, promoting these books, putting them in libraries, getting them out at book fairs. Um, and, and because of the D&D surge, they're doing extremely well. And I get photos from little kids clutching these books. That's the best. And yeah. They're drawing pictures of their characters and they're telling me their stories and all this stuff. Um, the books have been published in like five languages. Like it's, it's um, honestly, I, I don't know. It could end up being the most influential thing I work on. You know what I mean? Like uh -huh. years from now, adults coming over and saying the reason why I play D and D is because of these little, you know, pocket books yeah. that we put together. Yeah. Uh, that's I, I well we we that's it. we've I've done other videos and talked to plenty of people. The the value of the kids market continues to massive. people underrepresent it. Uh, but it but it's ma it's massive. But I a lot of I say it a different way. Cer some creators I think struggle with it at being kind of the the junior stuff or the interest. Yeah, and they're, the they're first the value. Right. The first book I did at Marvel was for that Disney Kingdoms line. Yeah, the uh, I did the right? Figment book. And the yeah. reason why that book happened was because editor Bill Roseman, who was in charge of special projects, he didn't know anything about Figment. He knew it was about a dragon. And he's yeah. like, I should get a fantasy guy. And he goes, oh, Jim's a fantasy guy. <laughs> and so he contacted me because he thought it was going to be a bit like Dungeons and Dragons or something. Oh, he's never good, gone on the ride then. Yes. Well, the, the good news is I'm I'm an animation buff and nerd. And at the college, I teach animation history. So mm -hmm. I knew all the Journey into Imagination stuff. I knew all the Disney stuff. And so I was the right fit, but not for the reasons he thought. Yeah, you know yeah. What I mean? that's funny. And the Disney thing ended up working out well. And to this day, you know, Disney fans bring those books over to me mm -hmm. and they get super excited. And I, I'm really proud of what we were able to build with those books. And that Bill was an amazing contact at Marvel. I, have you ever met Bill Roseman? Mm -hmm. I have, yeah. Did Joe? I, I don't think I have, but yeah. Man, Bill is the nicest. Like, there are some people who are surface level nice, and you're like, mm -hmm. you're putting on an act. And then there are people that are so richly nice, you're like, you can't be faking it. Like, yeah. you really, the, like, sunshine is blowing out of your pores. Like, my yeah. God. <laughs> Bill is such a nice guy and so supportive and so kind. It's like Scott McLeod we talked about last, yeah, yeah, yeah. last interview. Um, and Bill just and I got along really, really well. He was the first editor. I was in New York for other things. And I said, Bill, I'm I'm in New York. I would love to see the Marvel offices. I've never been there. And he said, You've never been to Marvel? Come on up here, buddy. And he was just like, you know, it was not actually easy to get in the doors at Marvel at that point because the movie stuff had been roaring. They were real closed door to outsiders, even if you were doing freelance work for them, if you weren't there for a very specific reason, but Bill just like brought me up because he knows I'm a big fanboy, and, and toured me around the office and shaking hands and, you know, being kind to everyone. And then he sits down in his office and he goes, I got a question for you. And I'm like, what? He goes, what's the first, uh, what's the first Marvel comic you remember buying? you know, with your own money. And I was like, whoa. Uh, and I go, amazing Spider-Man. Uh, it's either 231 or 232. And he goes, Dr. Hyde's on the cover? I said, no, the Cobra. That's the issue after. And he goes, I know it. And it like, that's Bill. You know, <laughs> like he knows. There's stuff. He, 
he's one of those people. There, there's a lot of people who, and, and, and Joe and I have talked to a few, uh, Glenn Greenberg's another, there's some people who, who just love the company. They're wonderful people. They get no, no notice. I mean, they, their name's not right. well known and it's, it's always the shame because there's some really good people. in these oh, companies. Well, what's right. funny now. So Bill and I got along amazingly well. And so he started sending me tons of work. So I would do the candy comics, as we lovingly called them, the little insert comics that would go in the cereal boxes or the digital giveaway stuff. And and a lot you were saying about art, you know, people turning up their nose at it or, or being, yeah. oh, that stuff's crap. You're like, you know what? First of all, it pays the same page rate as anything else at Marvel. And second of all, you learn a lot because you got to complete the stuff under a tight deadline. You got to deliver the goods and you got to have the characters in their voices and, and find ways to make it entertaining. Even if you're doing a candy bar comic or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And Bill really appreciated that, that I could hit the mark and knew what I was doing with this stuff mm -hmm. because Udon had done those kinds of projects for years. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I know how it's going, you know, don't put guns and don't have, you know, violence. And like, this is not the place for that. Right. Um, and yeah. then he ended up asking me to do, this is the weirdest product. In the UK, they have something called, in Europe, they have something called Spider-Man Magazine. I think mm -hmm. they probably still have it. Yep. And every month, it's got mazes and games for kids and a 12-page original Spider-Man story. Someone's got to write that. Yep. And at the time, it was tying into the, to the cartoon called Web Warriors. Mm -hmm. And so if a character had shown up on Web Warriors, I could use them. Well, Web Warriors had Thor and Hulk and Captain America. Blade showed up in an episode. Yeah. So I just started doing team-ups almost every single issue. And then, and then I got to show that I could write all those characters. Yeah, that was smart. <laughs> so it was like right. a, a proving ground for me. Um, and then Bill and I were developing something together, an original new Marvel concept. He actually had quite a boost in his profile because he was the editor on guardians of the galaxy. When, uh, um, oh, for, I forget the names of the guys who did it, the version that they used for the movies, basically. He was the editor on that book. Oh, so guardians okay. of the galaxy blows up and everyone's like, Bill's great. And Bill was great, you know, but it was like, like a reminder to everyone how good of an editor he was. And so he had a bit of cachet and he's like, I want to do another team of like misfits in a different part of the Marvel universe. I would love for you to write this. And I was like, Oh my God, that would be so great. So we were in the midst of developing it and uh, it was supposed to launch before secret wars, then during secret wars, then after secret wars. And it just kept getting moved around the schedule. And then he got a promotion and he moved to the uh, West coast and took over Marvel Games, where he is now the head of Marvel Games. Oh. But that meant that our project died on the vine. Mm -hmm. But Bill did the favor of a lifetime to me. On the way out the door, he basically uh, said to Tom Brevoort in the Avengers office, Jim's really great. He delivers the goods. You should give this guy a shot. Yeah. Well, and, and that's certainly paid off. I mean, right. like we talked about in the last, uh, you know, video you, we did, uh, you did this Avengers event, got you a huge mm -hmm. profile there, got to work with some big characters, big names. I mean, go through the entire Avengers line. You're, uh, you're doing Conan. Now, uh, there was something Joe mentioned earlier that we really wanted to ask you about. Sure, sure. Um, I don't know, Joe, you, you had this idea. I, I, uh, you, you have an interesting background for, for someone in comics writing in that you have, co-written and you touched on this the last time right. uh, with with 
some high profile people, a lot of people that do co-writing comics tend to have like a team, like they come in together, right, like Dan right. Abbott and Hugh Lanning, like yeah, Zach yeah. Thompson and uh, Lonnie Nadler. Sure. You don't really have that, but you've jumped in and, you know, you've co-written with, you know, Mark Wade, Gail Simone, like all, yeah. all, all these people. How, how do you tackle that? How is it different? How do you get used to figuring out like, okay, this is my strength. This is your strength. Let's make right, it happen. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, every writing project and every editor is a different relationship, right? Yeah. And then with a co-writer, it's like that magnified. You yeah. need to figure out where you fit, you know? I lucked out in the fact that the co-writing that I've done, the vast majority of it has been a real joy where I'm able to find my place, you know? So Gail, for example, and I did that Conan Red Sonja crossover miniseries, and it was a blast. She was writing, obviously, Red Sonja at the time. I'd always wanted to write Conan, and she knew that I knew the lore, um, and so she and I ended up teaming up and she had the broad kind of story figured out and I was all like detail oriented. And so I could hunker in and go, Oh, you know what? We can bring in this little bit of lore. We can do this cool kind of thing yeah. and, and break it down and, and make it all kind of function in a way that, uh, we could send the proposal to the, to the licensor and they were like, Oh yeah, this makes sense. You know, um, and it, you know, it was just a really cool opportunity and proved, yeah, that exactly what you kind of said, like finding your place and knowing, you know, what you do well. Um, I'm trying to think the next co-writing thing I would have done might have been the the Avengers Weekly project where I ended up kind of, I'm not saying project managing, because obviously Tom was the editor on that book, yeah. but did a lot of pacing, did a lot of reference gathering, did a lot of you know, fitting things, pieces together and making sure that stuff functioned. What was unique about that weekly series was we had three artists who were quite compatible with each other are stylistically mm -hmm. all drawing simultaneously. So like Pepe Larraz is drawing issue one and like Paco Medina is drawing, I can't remember the exact numbers, like issue five or something. And Sean Isaacs is drawing another one. And it's like, you're trying you're making sure that if, if Quicksilver gets injured in this issue, it's the same injury that we're going to see in that next issue, even though that got drawn later. And so we had this reference pool where whoever drew a location first, even if it was in a later issue, that became the reference material that the artist used on the earlier issue. Like it was this friggin' Gordian knot of, of yeah. stuff that needed to get done to make it feel functional so that we weren't going back and redrawing and, changing a bunch of stuff later you know yeah. do you think uh this is this could be a very oddball question but uh because I, I i enjoyed the story it's old yeah. well um, yeah. Really, yeah was it was it worth it in the sense of i mean for you i you, you mentioned last time you had a blast doing it yeah um, was it like with it was more i mean it i don't think it's controversial it would be more of a struggle to work in that kind of environment it was tough but we were also able to the the advantage of the weekly release was you were freed from from those things like I talked about before, where you have to get everyone up to speed. Yeah, the conversation was constant. You know, people felt, oh man, last week crazy cliffhanger. This week we're going to find out why. You know what yeah. I mean? The yeah, other yeah. funky thing was we were done the book by the time the first issue shipped. So you have this weird feeling of just hanging back and and watching people <laughs> react nice. to it. You know, which was really unique. Yeah. Uh, in, 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 in a way you don't get, you know, a lot of times by the time they're soliciting a six issue miniseries, you might be writing the last issue or you might not, Yeah, you know? Um, 
It's, so it's, yeah, to the readers, I mean, I, I think the, the the readers, the customers like it. Uh, Batman Eternal had a similar thing going on, yeah. and it was doing that. I, I always just wonder what the, the the havoc behind the scenes, uh, which sometimes can be an enjoyable havoc. If sure, that makes sense, but it, it's, you know, the the ideal with these kinds of serialized books are. I guess it's sort of like with the D&D game we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. You need to have enough structure that it makes sense, but you need to leave room for spontaneity. You need to leave yeah. room when you're writing to go, you know what, that's even better. We got to be able to pursue this cool, creative burst in the moment. Um, you know, But with three writers, we had to have a pretty tight structure to make sure it was going to function. But every so often you'd get a cool synergy or you know, Al or Mark would suddenly email and go, you know what we can do? We can do this even more, or we can, we can foreshadow this even better because we were writing so much of it ahead of time. We could go back and make those little adjustments to make it, it feel so much tighter and, and more um, strategic about our, our planning, you know? And yeah. then you would, uh, you'd work with Dan Slott on Iron Man, yes. right? Wasn't so that, Dan yeah. and I did, yeah. yeah, and that was, um, you know, Tom has been my editor on the majority of Marvel books. And because of the goodwill that I'd built up on on Avengers No Surrender and No Road Home, um, Tom called me up and basically said, hey, you know, I know you get along really well with other writers and you and Dan are friends in general. Um, you know, Dan's doing Fantastic Four and Iron Man, and it's a lot. Um, I feel like you guys might gel really well. Let's do it. You know, are you interested? And I was like, yeah, that would be great. I'm really intrigued, you know, uh, with the book in general, Dan and I got on the horn and just chatted up a storm and got a sense of where he was seeing the book in six, eight, nine months, all the way through that 2020 Mm storyline. And so I knew the big picture idea. I knew what he was going for. And I was like, yeah, I'm interested. Let's do it. And so it was like, Dan was kind of doing it Marvel style. He was doing the Stan Lee thing where he would write the broad overview of the issue. Sometimes he would break down page by page, but other times he would just sort of say this scene, this stuff is three pages or whatever. And then I would go in and I would panel it and I would dialogue it. Nice. Okay. And then I would also try and, and add little extra synergies or I would call him up and go, you know what? I, this thing you did in this earlier issue, wouldn't it be cool if we brought that back or wouldn't it be neat? We can, we can thematically kind of echo some of this stuff even more. And we jammed really well on that. At the time I was also doing champions and we were doing that relaunch that I talked about mm-hmm. last time we chatted. And I said, you know, um, I've got Viv in my book and he was going to have a thing with vision in Iron Man 2020. And so I said, you know, it would be really cool if we could tie the champions into this and make them part of the uh, event you're going to do with Ultron and with all this other stuff. He was super on board. And that's why at the end of Champions 26, the one before the relaunch, Sparky, the dog, and mm-hmm. getting infected by uh, uh, Ultron, you know, this little probe or whatever. And that was sort of a teaser of in six months, we're going to do this thing. And it didn't end up happening. But the original plan was that I was going to be able to sort of synergize my books because I had Riri in Champions, you know, Ironheart, and I also had Viv and I had, you know, Sparky the dog. And we were going to be able to use them in a really fun kind of way with this Ultron storyline and off the tech and all these sorts of things. So it just all kind of hung together really well in the plan. Yeah, the best laid plans, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the Champions book doesn't end up uh, lasting long enough to do the crossover. And um, midway through my run on Iron Man with Dan, I get the offer to do Conan. Right. And Conan is a is a bucket list book for me. 
Uh, I had never intended to be the writer of Conan the Barbarian. Um, I had written Conan in No Road Home in the Avengers book, and I thought that's my last chance to write Conan. That's kind of a funny story about that. I assumed that both Al and Mark were going to really want to write Conan, and and Mark's sort of ambivalent about the character. He doesn't dislike him, but he doesn't really. He's not a huge fan. And Al Ewing was like, "Well, I know you're a bigger fan, so why don't you write the Conan stuff?" And I was just like in my glory, writing all these cool mm-hmm. Conan things. And I came up with that issue where it's like Conan and Scarlet Witch across the Hyborian Age and the desert and all that stuff. It was like the witch and the barbarian. Like it's all classic yeah. kind of Conan oh, it's stuff. Perfect. Yeah. It was, was a lot of fun. It was one of the nicest parts of that. Well, I don't mean. <laughs> These all sound like backhanded compliments. No, it's all good. Part of the book. That was yeah. a good part of the book. I, I really thought that was I, like No Road Home. I I grabbed a lot of floor on that one. Like I um, so that middle section with Conan is almost all mine, and the big reveal at the end, the the house of um, you know the house of ideas, that was actually my idea. Uh, the the climax of the book, I figured that all out, which I'm really proud of. Um, but I thought, okay, that's my chance to write Conan. I knew Jason was launching the book and that would kind of be that, you know, he was doing the monthly book. And then they did that Savage Sword series, which was, uh, almost anthology style where different creative teams were rotating in on it. And I thought, oh crap, I could finally write a, instead of co-writing, no offense to Gail and no offense to Mark or Al, I really would love to have a Conan story with just my name on it, on the yeah, record. That's reasonable. Um, in the classic Hyborian age, no crossovers, no superheroes, just like pure sword and sorcery, badassery. And um, so I pitched an idea to Mark Besso, the editor, uh, for this story that ended up being called The Gambler. And it's a three-part story in Savage Sword. And that was my, my mic drop. That was like, this is what I think Conan is. And this is why I think he's cool. And this is what a Conan story is supposed to feel like. Um, and Pat Zerker drew it, did a great job. It's Conan in this gambling hall where you can literally gamble your life away. And he's like out of his depth. And at any moment he could get slain. And, you know, there's monsters and, and dancing pretty girls and assassins. And it's just like pure, you know, Robert E. Howard-esque stuff. But not, I'm not copying one story directly. I'm sort of just taking little bits and pieces of ingredients of things I liked from Roy and things I liked from Robert, you know, a little bit of Kurt Busiek and like, this is what I think Conan is. Um, And it went over really, really well. The readers liked it. The, you know, Mark, my editor liked it and Conan properties loved it. They thought it was super cool. Um, We introduced a card game in the story called Serpent's Bluff. And they're now turning that into an actual Conan card game. Oh, seriously? Yeah, because which is super fun, you know? And I was like really kind of uh, thrilled about that. And so when I finished handing in The Gambler, um, Mark turned around and said to me, hey, we want to do more stuff with the Robert E. Howard properties. We're, you know, talking to the Conan properties people about expanding our license. Solomon Kane, Dark Agnes, these other characters in the canon we want to do stuff with are you interested in writing a crossover? And they were like, it would be ideal if we had a Marvel connection. Mm-hmm. And so I brainstormed over like three or four days, I brainstormed what would become Serpent War. And I wrote that crazy crossover book and Moon Knight's in it. Um, and so I teed up some stuff that, that some of the stuff that Jason was going to do in the Avengers story where Khonshu and all mm-hmm. those sorts of things that were happening. And it was just a really, really fun ride. 
And when I handed in that first script, I really blew it out, big narrative, crazy stuff. And um, like it got handed in to Mark, my editor. And then he, a couple of days later, called me and offered me the regular book. He said, you know, Jason's wrapping up his run on Conan. Your Conan property's number one choice. You're my number one choice. Um, do you want the book? It came out of nowhere for me. Um, I actually didn't say yes on the spot, believe it or not. Hmm. I, I, I said, give me 24 hours. Um, cool. I, I am kind of overwhelmed. I was doing, at the time I was doing Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda. I was doing um, Iron Man with Dan. I was doing D&D stuff and a bunch of D&D consulting. I'm still teaching. Mm -hmm. Like uh, my plate was surged full, full, full. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of like, this is a dream book for me but I don't want to mess it up. I've got to make sure I make room for this. And so I called up Tom and said, I need to leave Iron Man. Like that was the book that, that I could leave. Do you know what I mean? Like a co-writer credit versus a solo credit. Yep. Iron Man's a great character and I love the character, but, but Conan, man, like I got to do this. You can't turn down Conan. <laughs> right. For me in particular, that was a dream book. Tom was so supportive, super cool, no problem. And that's the reason why uh, Christos Gage ended up coming on to co-write with Dan. Right. So, um, you know, yeah. And, and, and I've been doing Conan, you know, ever since, which has been a real thrill. And you are, you're going to hit the 300th issue here. And in- yes. Issue 25 is legacy 300. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, um, yes, 25, 300. This is in September or October. September. September is going to be the, the legacy 300. I'm a, I'm a legacy number nerd. Like yeah. I love the legacy numbers. So if you go to my website and you look on my bio and it says the books I've written, they're always the legacy numbers instead or of the, the right numbers, as you might say. Right, as we would say, as you and I, <laughs> collector nerds would say the correct number. So like my Avengers runs both, um, no yeah. surrender and no road home are the legacy numbers and it that's just for my own satisfaction oh sure i, I mean <laughs> every, there's it's funny because there was such a, a battle i mean felt like five six years ago it seemed to come to a head and uh but online but inside the comic shop it was always it was a fun thing for people to debate but nobody right. people didn't really seem to care i mean they were buying the comics either way they just enjoyed the debate of it there what do you think joe like about the legacy numbers versus the you know all that stuff uh, i i feel like it's like they they got themselves in a hole they never had to be in yeah like I they, get that. they could have never and, and i i mean the collective day cuz it's not one company it's both no 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 you do this um you know, it's in, instead, it, and th- it felt like then they started to solve problems that weren't there by creating right. the point ones, the A's, sure. and stuff like this. And it's just, it, it wouldn't have been that hard. And I think part of it is just keeping that faith because now we see like Spawn three hundred did really well, sure. And there was there was a long stretch of time where it didn't, right, right, but right. It, it wasn't it wasn't resetting the number that did anything. It was, right. you know, adding new variant covers, getting exciting people again through other means. And the so, creative team is obviously is, the, is yeah. the biggest, you know, quote, quote, a bumper you can do to it. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the only thing that kills me is, you know, now annuals are not annuals. Like that's right. the only thing that yeah. makes me sad where I'm like, I liked the annual as a format. I thought it was really neat and that you could count on it every year. And whether or not you call them by the numbers, and originally they were just numbered, or you call sure. it by the year it comes out, I felt like there was something to celebrate there. Something I, fun. I, I, and now they're like, 
they're just weird special issues that get sort of thrown against yeah. the wall. And I, I think it's a, it's a disservice to the people doing those books. Cause I don't think that they're bad books by any means. No. I, it did. Ter- there was an advantage that I had. So when I was doing champions, we had that new character snow guard, the Canadian mm-hmm. superhero that we created. And there was quite a bit of buzz about her. And I knew that we didn't really have space in the schedule to tell a solo story. And I was like, you know, there's a lot of buzz. If we did an annual, I could focus on her. And they were like, yeah. And all of a sudden we got it added to the schedule. So I had like an extra two of champions that I could flex on a, uh, in an area that I wanted to explore, but that we didn't kind of have space for in the monthly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think Joe's got it right. It's, it's, uh, it, it created a problem that wasn't necessary to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the biggest, the biggest problem is, is that if you're, it's tough. I feel bad for, for all kinds of, you know, people in marketing, people on, on retail, people on the creative teams, like everyone wants to be on a rocket ride. Everyone wants to be on a book that's got momentum. You know, if a book hasn't been around in years, you know, how are the ducks coming back? You're not going to call it issue number, whatever the next in order, right? Like you kind of got to call it a number one, but, but how much time is too much and in order to, to hit that button. Right. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so there's all sorts of exceptions to the rule. Like if you brought back She-Hulk, you're not going to continue the John Byrne numbering, like, you know, or even the Dan Slott numbering. It's been a long time since there was a She-Hulk book. Okay. Is that justified? Well, why that, but not something else? Like it's weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the, the main thing, like I I think of at least when we're talking about this is when the numbering uh, goes back to number one and a month has not been missed. <laughs> sure. Sure. And, and I that's, get that. that's, that's so often. And, and it'll be like, we're back to one uh, legacy numbering uh, for the anniversary right. issue. Uh, we're back to number one and like that kind of stuff. Yeah, And, and, you know, in skull kickers, we made fun of that. I don't know yeah. if you remember. Yes. yes we did. Did, uh, this was our fourth story arc and our numbers had, you know, sunk as, a creator own book and its fourth story arc, it's tough to, mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, uh, stand out. And so I, there was a jokey book and I said, let's do a new number one for five months in a row. And, um, the nice thing about image comics is you are in control. You are the creator. And Eric Stevenson was like, be careful. You're going to get a lot of flack. And I was like, I'm planning on it. Like I just went in, you know, so we did this press release that was very much in the style of all the, the reboot number one kind of things. And people laughed because we were calling it the uncanny skull kickers because at that point there was uncanny Avengers, uncanny X-Men. And there was another uncanny book. I swear there was like three uncanny books. Yeah. I, I, uncanny X-Men. And so, and so what the funniest thing happened the, the week that uncanny skull kickers came out, I could never have planned this. A couple of the Marvel books shipped late and all the uncanny books came out that week. And so there were four uncanny books and mine was the fourth one. And so a bunch of people took photos of it on the stands and they were like, look, Zub, you're right there beside uncanny Avengers and all this stuff. And I was laughing. I was like, this is amazing. So such good marketing for me. And then the next month we did the savage skull kickers, number one. And then the month after, you know, we just like the money skull kickers and we, we just on the final press release, the fifth one, we actually said, you know, we haven't, beaten this horse dead yet like we're just going to do it one more time you know <laughs> and our to our credit our sales almost doubled <laughs> no it's an indie book like you know they're not yeah. like 
world leader yeah. sales, but we were sure. back in the in the green in a big way on that book because people thought it was really funny and they checked it out. And so it was a unique opportunity for us. But yeah. I never imagined we would be prescient, you know, of of the industry to come. And even just a yeah. couple of years later, where it felt like that joke was yeah not enough like like just wild you know what i mean when See, when, well, when all, all some of the people, marvel books are making fun of the same thing like i couldn't yeah. believe it you know yeah For all you people who comment on this every time look at this you're buying the book you're doing this <laughs> to yourselves what are you doing? <laughs> well and i actually did a blog post about those relaunches and i kind of said I feel guilty because we just, I make fun of this thing and we just benefited from it. Like, yeah. oops, you know, here we go. That's why they do it guys. Um, it was wild. It was a, it was a weird scene, you know? Uh, so I've got to ask in terms of, um, you know, kind of big announcements and, uh, yeah. you know, you've got a new book coming out, yes. uh, Avengers tech on, and yeah, it's we just announced it. Yeah. Six really issues, right? Yep. Six issue miniseries. So, so much fun. how did, how, how did this come about? And, uh, and then I'll, I'll I mean, I, then I got a question for you after that, but how did this, sure. how did this begin? So tech on Avengers is a really funky book because it's a partnership between Bandai Japan and Marvel, you know, um, Marvel's brand has been growing so huge in Asia. The movies are massive and everything else. And a lot of companies want to obviously get involved with Marvel stuff, you know, CB, uh, Sibolsky, for a long time, he was, in Asia doing um, sales and development and things like that before he became editor-in-chief. And um, so he's got a lot of great relationships over there as well. And so Bandai's working on this toy line. Um, there's this, I think it's called F SF Figuarts. They're these amazing detailed posable figures uh, that are produced. And um, they got this really hot designer over there to come up with these brand new kind of armor designs as if every Avenger was wearing Iron Man armor, sleek and awesome, looks like just uh, Ultraman by way of Evangelion kind of stuff. Yeah. And they had a sort of a base sort of idea of a story, but they weren't sure how, you know, where it could go exactly. And uh, I got recommended for the project. Uh, and helped kind of flesh it out, build out a bunch of that that world. And then we're doing this tie-in comic that is going to be pushed really heavily alongside the toys. Um, and those toys are going to come out in North America and all over the world. And uh, like Bandai did a big press announcement like two days ago, and they did this like live stream and you know, tons of toy collectors and comic book heads in Japan were watching this thing. They're showing off the prototypes of the toys. They're showing off pages from the comic. We needed to do the comic uh, really far ahead of time. Mm. So I'm actually in the midst of writing the final issue already. Oh. Um, and the art is done for issue three now. And so they can use that art on marketing and on promotion. Um, there's particular pages that they're going to be doing, you know, posters and all sorts of funky inserts and, and all kinds of cool things with that we've kind of built into the whole marketing uh, strategy for it. So it's a really unique opportunity. I get to play in this like kind of tokusatsu uh, uh, world, like if you guys don't know the term, I'm sure you do, Perch. But it's like these. Uh, Joe, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, weave, like, yeah. It just say explain anyway. Just it's like it's like Power Rangers and 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 you know, Common Rider, Mast Rider, and all yeah, these yeah. sorts of shows. They're like the kind of fun, colorful, over the top action adventure shows in Japan. Yeah. And they've got a 
kind of a language of their own and they're like big and dramatic and over the top and colorful and ridiculous and, and joyous. They're really joyous adventure. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to bring some of that kind of quality, like a bit of a power Rangers quality to the Avengers. And so the villains are, are way over the top and the monsters are crazy. Mm -hmm. The artist we've got on the series is this guy, Jeff Cruz. His nickname is Chamba and he does every frame looks like it's from an animated movie. Like he does this beautiful kinetic uh, artwork, gorgeous and colorful. I've been a fan of his for years. We worked together back in the day at the Udon studio. And when um, Tom brought me this, this thing and he said, you know, tech on, and this is what it all entails. I said, I know the guy who needs to draw this. And, you know, Tom was like, well, we don't know what the, you know, what Bandai is going to want. And I'm like, they'll love it. Trust me. <laughs> I, I brought Jeff in and Jeff did a test page and the test page is literally the first image that they used in the marketing. Like yes. that's how on the money it was. I knew he was the right guy for the job and he's been just knocking it out of the park uh, every single day on those pages. They're gorgeous. Now so. this is a standalone kind of sits in its own pocket universe, right? This isn't. Yeah. We're referencing some current Marvel continuity because that was something Bandai wanted. They wanted it to be like, plugged into the marvel universe but it's not affecting the current continuity right gotcha. so like thor is in there wearing his current costume because they were like well that's what thor looks like and i'm like exactly so you know that's cool and and all that kind of stuff uh, but it is its own sort of little pocket and and tons of fun you can get away with so much when you have your own you know it's like um Tom Taylor's doing injustice. You don't have to worry about what's happening in Superman. You know what sure. I mean? Like, or, or deceased or something like that. It's a fun kind of self-contained space where you can stretch out and, and kind of go buck and have fun with it. And, and so we can do some crazy stuff you couldn't normally get away with. And yeah, it's just been a, a real joy to, to be a part of. And then to see that, I think these toy collectors and a bunch of people, if you love Power Rangers or any of that kind of stuff, I think it's going to do well with retailers. I think it's going to do well with a mm -hmm. different part of the market, hopefully. Um, they're doing some really smart branding. Like the main cover of the series is the exact same imagery they're using on the packaging for the toys. Oh, so you can shelve them together and be like, you got a one-on-one, like, go get it, you know? Yeah. Now, will they put a trade together in a Tonkabon style? I I don't know about any of that end of thing. <laughs> you know, there was a man. Come on, Marvel! If we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, I would love to go to Japan and see the like. Right now in Akihabara, there were some people taking photos. They have the prototypes in glass cases in the in in Akihabara, showing them off. Wow. So hundreds of yeah, yeah, hundreds of thousands of people are walking by it every day and seeing yeah. the big promo and seeing Chamba's artwork and stuff. Like the, Bandai's putting some muscle behind it. It's very encouraging, you know. I, I said it right. Yeah, no, I, I Yodabashi camera, I think, has yes, yes, that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, exactly. No, 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 Yodabashi. um, very, no, very, very cool. Um, I come on with come on out with a Tonkaban style book. Come on, Marvel. that would be cool, right? Yeah, the response from Bandai has been amazing. The fans have been really excited about it. those toys. Like, I'm not a huge toy collector personally, and I'm like, man, if I was, if I was, I'd be freaking out, you know. Yeah. But as a kid, I would have lost my mind. These things look so badass, and they're super posable. And yeah, it just yeah. looks, it just looks like a good time, you yeah. know. Um, as much as I, I do love writing in the the main Marvel universe and all the continuity and all that that entails there is a joy to be able to just kind of play with the toys off in their own kind of space and, and, and bust it out, you know?
Yeah, I people, I, and you've dispelled it, I think, in kind of walking through the how this came about. But uh, there's been some comments that th- these kinds of things are our response. It's it's basically Marvel trying to you know fend back the invasion of Demon Slayer and My Hero Academia. But uh, it, I don't know. Like, but but is it feels X-Men, like a partnership. Is, is X Men Demon Days a cool book? Yeah, sure. You know, like, it's a sure, great sure. book. Like, and if that's done well for you in your store, why wouldn't you want more of those? Like, why well, wouldn't you want yeah. more cool? You know, yeah, I mean, no, it, it, well, if is it that weird to say, hey, if something is popular, then you want to try and get on that train? Like, I, yeah, you know, it's not Marvel a- Zombies did really well for some kooky reason, like, you know, yeah. it, it, the people were into zombies, you know, sure. like that tell a cool, you know, story, like that's kind of the, the whole point of the thing. Like, yes, yeah. you can do really bad trend hopping. Or you can try and find a new niche and and kind of push into that space and and do something cool with it. You know? Yeah, I, I I mean, or do uh, the Marvel Mangaverse again? <laughs> so the Marvel Mangaverse is such a weird thing because Udon was part of that. That was before yeah, yeah. I came on board the studio, mm-hmm. and it's like you could tell which books were there was heart behind it and which ones were sort of like cold formulas that were being plugged into, sure. you know, spaces yeah. on it. Yeah. I've you been know? old friend. So I, I, yeah, that's a, yeah. Like, you know, I, Scotty young kind of had his uh, almost breakout there if I'm not mistaken, you know, yeah, like was, I think was, some really good stuff came from that. Mm-hmm. Even if some of it you looked at and you go, Ooh, that's kind of been photocopied through the photocopier too many times, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and it's really about, I, I think a lot of people get this about fantasy as well. Mm-hmm kind of tying it back to some of the earlier things we said, I've heard a lot of people, they'll say like, oh, you know, if the first thing they've ever seen is Game of Thrones or, or they went to see the Lord of the Rings movies and they don't realize the depth and breadth of, of fantasy literature or sword and sorcery or pulp or any of those things, you can come in and do a real surface level pastiche and think you're doing something cool. But mm-hmm. man, people were telling these stories or that story you think is innovative. They did it 40 years ago. You know what I mean? Or you can come in with an open mind to learn and do something really cool and dig deeper or be a genuine fan of the thing. Like a lot of people have told bad Conan stories and it's not because they don't like Conan. It's just maybe all they know is the Arnold movies and they read a couple issues of Savage Sword and that's their, that's as deep as it goes. And it doesn't mean that they're bad stories, but a lot of times they're falling into cliches that have been done a million times before. And you got to kind of go, look, man, you know, it's, it's like doing a Batman story where he's, he's punching out a a mugger in an alleyway, you know, you're like snore. What's like we've, or yes, he's perched on the gargoyle. That is the cliche, but now what do you got? Like what, what else can you bring to the table? You know. I, I just I don't think it's it's uh, so weird. I, I, I was surprised a little bit at kind of some of the negativity around these kinds of efforts because a lot of what customers and readers want is they're like you know the company should be responsive to things right. like where the company should be giving you know fantasy's popular we like to see fantasy stuff so it's like I, I'm you're you're getting what you're asking for what you ideally need to do and the smartest thing for an editor to do is to cast creative talent that is going to bring something more than just yeah for sure a baseline hit across oh you, you want yeah my hero academia I can do that and they just like do a very bare bones one for yeah. one copy or whatever you know oh dragon ball's hot with the kids I'll do a dragon ball you know you're like no you gotta 
you got to think more. You got to say, why do people like that? Why do they think it's so cool? And not just transplant the tropes, but yeah. also try and dig below the surface, right? It's uh, it, it fits really well. We uh, Joe and I actually talked to Kari Andrews yesterday, and he nice. of this amazing yeah. fantasy series comes out that looks this, so cool. It's yeah. I, I think yeah, it's going to be a fun time. We've got a right. really good mech story. We got a fantasy story. <laughs> we got two. This is a nice time to be reading comics. These characters are bigger than the current continuity. You know, Batman. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why those Else Worlds were so awesome because yeah. you can you can put them in the Victorian era. You can put them in a vampire story. You can. Put them in like and we want to see how the thing we know kind of reacts and changes at when you push it up against different ingredients right yeah. i think if you're if you're smart about it or you can come in and do the most bare bones obvious you know version and it tends to be forgotten very quickly right and well, that's I mean, the thing. You're lucky maybe <laughs> it right, right. Quickly. Or, or it hangs around your neck for all time but yeah like you know i i ideally it's not like i'm expecting people to go Avengers tuck on is the deepest story and I wept openly or whatever, but they're like, you know, you know what we love by, by what we're showing off and you know what our influences are. We're wearing it on our sleeve and, and come in with a good time. And I think you're going to, you're going to love it because you know what we're going for and you know what the possibilities are inherent in that kind of story. And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, it's, I think the same kind of thing happened with like heroes reborn, like everyone, if you come in with your preconceived notions and you're like, Oh man, Jason Aaron's doing DC stuff. You're like, yeah, but he's doing these fun kind of takes and alternate sort of spins. And if you come in with an open mind, I think you'll be surprised how some of it synergizes in fun ways, or you can just sling mud at everything because you, you well that's you, the cool thing to do online i hear yeah and it's not to say that that therefore you can never be negative or you can never be critical but if it's just knee-jerk yeah. responses before you even read it that's mm -hmm. the stuff that drives me a little crazy yeah. i miss you know? and this this would take us into a complete rabbit hole but i'll deal <laughs> but i i miss that uh there was a time, I mean, because a lot of where I come to, you know, the, um, to Twitter or to, to YouTube or whatever else, it's mm -hmm. uh, it's trying to recreate a feeling that I had in a comic shop where right. people would have arguments, but <laughs> there was, they weren't, they, you weren't punching somebody in the They were kind ball. of playful. I yeah. think. You'd be like, you're reading that book? And you're like, yeah, yeah man, it's awesome. And they're like, okay. And it, you sort of laugh it off and people collect what they're going to collect, you know, I, and the the Marvel DC schism runs deep and you all laugh it off. Exactly. Yeah. There, there, there was these kinds of debates and what's what I struggle with a lot. And, and I, I just, I, I want it to happen and I don't think it can now, but I want those fun arguments to take place online and not right. turn into world war three. Like it, I think, yeah. What, yeah, I think, you know, the biggest problem with a lot of online discourse <clears throat> is because the majority of, if it's Twitter, for example, it's text-based, so there's no context, right? Uh, yeah. Sarcasm doesn't come across or, you know, particularly subtweeting where it's like, you're not reading yeah. the jokes that led to the thing. All you're reading is the reactionary flip out or whatever, you yeah. know? And, and it's really easy to get pulled into a vortex as a yeah. reader. It's easy to get pulled into a vortex as a creator. Mm -hmm. And I've seen creators dear friends of mine, colleagues, you know, end up getting in these scraps with people with 20 followers and they're going to like pour hours of their life into this and like gnash their teeth and rend their garments. Like they're flipping out. And, yeah. I, and I, 
And I kind of go, man, this is not a productive use of your time. And I would love to say, and therefore I will stand above the fray. Yeah. And a few times, you know, I've been pulled into some of these little yeah, arguments yeah, and, yeah. and eight people can feel like a pile on. If yep. they're rapid fire sending you anger or frustration and you're trying to justify yourself in the moment and you're hitting send and you're like, no, you're wrong or, you know, and you've got the gotcha and, and eight people rapid fire hitting you up and your notifications are going off. It's really easy to say, well, I would never, well, mm-hmm. I would never let myself get into an argument with seven follower you know, number, idiot, whatever. And you're like, and then all of a sudden you're getting pelted and you go, screw you, man. And a few times it's like, it sounds corny, but have to physically like put down the phone or like walk away because you're like, this is not right. This is not healthy. And, and, and so I have a lot of, I have empathy on all kinds of sides, these things. And maybe that makes me, maybe I'm, I'm, you know, a fence sitter or whatever you want to call it, but it's like, I understand. Yeah. I understand the passion of the fans and why they freak out on a bunch of things. I understand the creators who feel like they're being rained upon or, or in that moment, they, you know, something as simple as a serialized story and you're midway through and the fans have decided you're a piece of garbage and you're like, Uh you know, you know, you're midway through, right? You know that the other side there's probably light on the end of these stories most of the time. Like I hate to tell you, you know, like I don't want to spoil it, but sometimes the hero has to fail a bit. That's not to say every story is going to stick the landing or anything Mm -hmm. else. Right. But it can be hard. It can be hard to, to fight back that urge. And so, yeah. But on the other hand, I've sort of, you know, there are times where I'm noticing now more and more, I have been able to sort of stop myself where it's Mm -hmm. like, this is today's flip out. No one needs my opinion on fill in the Mm blank. Like, so I I can speak specifically about one because it directly pertains to me. Okay. So the people were flipping out on Dan slot because he did that Marvel's documentary about. Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. And Christos gauge was Mm -hmm. the co-writer and they interviewed him and Tom and they, they created that fictional flow of how an issue of iron man gets made mm-hmm. and it everyone's putting on a big guffaw weird thing and they're all making fun of dan because he's a lazy and last minuteing the whole thing and I, there were parts of it where i know dan and i know tom i literally know everyone in that damn special yep. and i know they're not actors and they're not mm-hmm. you know like they're they're putting on a goof and it's not quite coming across to people the way that it's intended yeah. or if you're not in the know it's not it's not playing properly right mm-hmm. and then dan's getting defensive and everyone's freaking the hell out yep. and and people raining crap down on dan and saying well you're just crapping it out and your coworkers do all the work and blah, 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 blah. and it's like look i don't get involved in these phrase but i have literally just been dan's co-writer Mm-hmm. I literally was doing the job that Christos Gage is doing in that special. And if Christos Gage says it, you feel like he has a vested interest because he's the guy on the camera. Yep. So I feel like I can come in relatively pure, like not perfect. <laughs> Obviously I have biases. <laughs> oh, sure. oh, Jim. <laughs> and I, and I come in and I say, that is, you are projecting. Dan is a professional. Dan delivers the goods. Is Dan perfect? No. Am I perfect? No. You know, but Dan had the whole story built. I know he did because I knew the whole story eight months in advance. Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. And so even in the special, when they're talking about him kind of on the fly, making it up, I cringe at that because I I could see how people were mistaking it. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh man. And, and, and it, there's also an element of it where <laughs> yeah. just in general, this is, this is my own bias. Okay. I am not a fan of the, the, those stories where a slacker wins everything. Yeah, like I, sure. I hate those movies. Mm-hmm. I hate those stories. And that I know a lot of them are really well done. They're very funny, but when I'm watching them, it always drives me a little crazy that the yeah. character who does the least gets the most. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, you know, I'm sure you could, I could sit down with a therapist and they would go, the reason why is because, or whatever, but it's you yeah. know pretty obvious. I work You're very Canadian. hard. Yeah. I'm Canadian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I work very hard and I feel like there should be some balance between the work put into something versus the reward you receive. Sure. Is the real world like that? No, not all the time, but on the whole, I have seen a lot of examples that it is right. Mm-hmm. And when you sell the slacker superhero, when you sell the, the idea of someone who gets everything for nothing, you are creating an image in people's minds that is not healthy, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, Comic book creation gets so few platforms to be shown to the general public. The mm. characters get all these platforms, yeah. but the people, you know, at best you'll have a documentary in the making of, and one of the writers shows up for 30 seconds and goes, I love writing daredevil or whatever. You know what I mean? And yeah, then it's yeah. like, go to the actor, go to the director, <laughs> go to the special effects guy, yeah. you know, Here's your hundred dollars, uh, Ed Brubaker. No. Right, right, whatever. Like the, the people don't get those kinds of opportunities to speak yep. about their craft almost ever, and then to have one of those few opportunities come across like it just happens. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get it. Like, it, it so I mean, people know I, I did a video on this thing that it came out, and it's refreshing because I I had the same take as you, sure. which was I I. Well, my my overall thought was like the person I was mad at was not Dan Slott. Right. It was who was the maniac who edited this thing? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> that blew this opportunity, and it's yeah. you know the, I don't. But think You've got to keep in mind the people that are putting that show together. You know, they're probably not diehard comic book fans. Oh, they're sure. there to make entertaining television, right? Exactly. And, and so, if you have four here. takes yeah. and you have the one that's the most entertaining one, even yep. if it's the one that makes people look you know, bumbling yeah. or whatever you want to call it. Like that's the difficult part of the thing. Right? Well, it yeah. was, it was meant, I, I mean, I, I don't believe uh, go, the number of people speculated did, did who did Dan slot piss off at the Marvel studios. Right, office. right, but, right. But it's mm-hmm. more, I think there was a narrative they came in with like, Hey, these guys are kind of jokey. Let's sure. do it kind of jokey. And ah, yeah. look, Dan slots messing around at the beginning and just distracting. But I think anyone right. it, with a camera in front of you, I think people are surprised how you can change if you've yeah. never done a lot of public speaking and all of a sudden literally the spotlights on you you feel like you have to be more of yourself you have to like turn everything up to 11 sure. yep and and i could see those traits like i could see 
Oh, for Tom, Tom, for Tom sure. being extra Tom and yeah, yeah. Dan being extra Dan. And I was just like, I know these people and I, and they're dear friends and I respect them. And it's like, Oh man, this is, this is a, a, a weird ride. Like, yeah. and I want the best for everyone. And I want everyone to walk away from something like that and go, Oh man, making comics is cool and, and amazing. Yeah. And there were moments like when Dan's signing at the end and he's interacting with the fans and they're super excited to meet him. And even as staged as bits as that were, like that's very pure and there's something sure. very joyous sure. there, you know? Yeah, the camera was further back. Yeah, it did, it did play off. It it's yeah. I, I I want us to be at a place, and I, I think it's it's a fool's errand, but I want us to be at a place where you know people can watch that and go, well, that that didn't work. And sure. not, not have it turn into an attack on Dan, not for Dan yeah. to feel like he has to come in and start clubbing people. Well, just, I think it's also this yeah. weird thing where, you know, it's one of those classic um, Venn diagrams where people just projected whatever they already thought on top of it. Well, sure. Oh, of course, yeah. and, and, and so it's one of those rare occurrences where I got involved in a conversation online because I felt like I had knowledge that directly mm -hmm. pertained to the circumstances and could ideally shed some light on a thing. But but that's like, listen to you. <laughs> actually, you know, it wasn't completely a waste. Like some people came away a little, you know, I can't say that <laughs> I turned the tide for him or whatever, but no, it was no. like, I, I tried to be, I always try to be honest, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes I guess to a fault, but, but I try and say, this is the reality of it, you know, and some of it's good and some of it's bad and some of it's difficult and some of it's stressful, but it's still writing comics and it's still a lot of fun on the whole, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I feel like, and and this is like this, this isn't uh, related, Dan. This is just hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. Thing. But like, um, kind of what goes into this, I, I think, what causes some of the frustration is again, it, it's it's the wild west. No one knows what the hell they're really doing on on social media to a certain extent. <laughs> right. So, like, I think you see, like you were saying, like you might get a creator or or, or anyone in is someone involved in comics, someone people know that end up wasting like four hours arguing with right. someone with 20 or less followers. That's sure. just like a, a bot account. And then someone who is actually either a fan or likes their work, like might chime in and be like, Oh, well, you, you know, I, I normally really like your stuff, but I, I really don't like how you portrayed Stephanie sure. Brown and blah, blah, blah. And then the person's just so upset. They're like blocked. That's yeah. it. Yeah. through you and it's like you were arguing with a no faith sure like jerk who just wanted but to now you're but people. now you're wound up and and yeah. everything's yep. an attack right and yep. and there's also people who are coming in under all sorts of you know false pretense or there's people sure. who are genuinely watching you flip out and everything else right well and enjoy getting you to that place i mean that's right. it. because because be here's the reality of yeah. it if you're I don't know sunglasses 86 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You get to carry on your regular life at the end of this. You get to, sure. to leave Twitter, go get dinner and carry on. Right. But whoever the professional is, is now a, and I use this sparingly because I know I'm not trying to say a celebrity, but you're a public figure in the sense you're a known sure. real human being whose real name is being used on your account. Right? right. Like right. I'm not going to get recognized on the street, but at yeah. the end of the day, also my name is associated directly with my Twitter account and my social media. Yeah. So if I say something stupid, it gets pinned on me and you get to say all kinds of stupid things and it doesn't get pinned on you. And yeah. it becomes, yeah. and that's not to say, Oh, woe is me. 
poor comic book writer being pelted by the fans. It's just, it's a weird dynamic. Yeah. It, and, and people forget in the middle of all this is, and, and Sean Murphy did a really good point on the, his talk about social media. Mm-hmm. It's people forget there's another entity. There's a third party here, which is a platform itself that is, has sure. a vested interest in poking everyone with that stick and keeping yes. you going. All yes. the language they use around blocking and everything else is designed to be antagonistic on purpose. Because sure. that equals more engagement. So even a normal argument is right. you're, you're you're debating it in a vehicle where, and that's why like the vast majority of my social media is about promoting my stuff, talking about things I love, joking about things that I like, uh, you know, uh, um, whatever, you know, retweeting cool art. Uh, telling people excitedly about stuff either I've got going on or people that I, I respect and love their stuff, joking with my friends and peers in a m- almost universally positive way. Mm. Like it's like trying to be the best version of myself on those things because the little filter in the back has to be the one time you're not, and it's not like I've been perfect. Mm, That's the one they're going to screenshot. That's the one they're going to hold over your head. You know what I mean? So even you know, this last year has been a meat grinder for all of us, obviously. And, and there were a few times, like I got really frustrated about Canada's rollout of the vaccine. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And then a few hours later, it's like, I got that out of my system. I'm going to delete those tweets. Not because it's like, I'm haunted by them and it's the end of the world, but it's like, I kind of don't need to talk about that publicly. That's not the, the purpose. Um, I've got a good friend in the comic book industry and I won't call him by name or whatever. And he and I actually, um, call each other up every so often and we jokingly call it filling the venom bucket. And it's like, do you know, you ever see on those, uh, nature specials where they will press the fangs of the snake against the edge of the bucket and the venom will come out. So it's like we're pressing our teeth against the edge of a bucket and you're getting it out of your system. That's in a healthy, private on the phone. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And you're like, and it's private. It's the two of us. And you're just like, oh my God, this angers me so much. Or I don't know why the industry is this way or, or, yeah. or, you know, this interaction I had is so weird or these social media thing happened or all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And trying as hard as possible not to, to hit the send button and do it in a public way. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, I, I have people I do that with too. And I, I wonder, and Perchard, I'll also discuss, we'll see some, some of these insane tweets that end up, you know, uh, trending and, and all sure. that. And, you know, we'll just sort of be like, do these people not have like a, a, a friend or someone to just call and, and talk to about yeah, some of this stuff? Yeah. Like, and you don't know, you know, you don't, um, yeah. You know, and, and I think that's where having those kind of spaces to vent or having yeah. someone, and, and it can be tough because, you know, they'll say, well, talk to someone who's not in the industry. And you're like, it is nice to have someone who knows what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's one thing to tell random, you know, even if they're your friend, the, the amount of backstory you got to get into it. And, and yet, I think there are times when it's healthy to tell outside people because they can also give you some context where they go, you know what, this doesn't matter. And you're yeah. like, you're right. And I couldn't put that, I literally couldn't agree with you until you told me that. Like I couldn't see it forest for the trees. You know, every so often my wife does a phenomenal job of, of bringing me back to earth on stuff. You know, I'll be super stressed about a thing I'm working on or trying to figure something out. And and it's genuinely important to me to do a good job and all that stuff. And then she'll say to me, and yet, and yet you're still writing the Avengers. 
Mm-hmm. And you're like, and yet I'm still writing the Avengers. You know what I mean? And yet tomorrow you're getting on a conference call with Wiz the Coast or, or whatever. You know what I mean? And it's not to say that she doesn't care or that she's not empathetic. She's just like reframes that moment and goes, is this as apocalyptic as it feels in that moment? No. You need, you need, you need a support mechanism that's going to yeah. help you. And then every so often, you know, you've, I, if you're going to send an email to a colleague or a peer or a unload a fireball on someone like that's, you need a safety valve. You need someone that you can send that and go, am I nuts or is this the right thing to, and then someone else can go, you know, that one line there, that's yeah. going to haunt you. That's a, yeah. ri- and, and because you are a writer, you can make words sting extra <laughs> like sure. you can really bring the damage when you want to. And, yeah. and every so often my wife will read an email that I'm like about to send. And she goes, that's very funny. You should not send that. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like that, that, that is, you think you're being witty and amusing, but you're poking the bear because you know, you can, and you're not seeing it in context. And it's not like it happens very often, but just every so often you kind of need that little safety valve or check and go, yeah, yeah, this is ridiculous. I got to just step off. It's, I want to, I just want to get us back to the comics, comic book shop behavior where we can go in, we can have arguments, we can make fun of things and nobody feels like they're getting a limb lopped off and it can go on, you know, but, but you, so you have a comic book store and I know it hasn't been running normally, obviously, but, is it's not like that at the store. No, no. And it, well, I mean, it is, it is like, it's like what I want at the store. It's not well, like, of course. it's not like social media. It's uh, sure. it is, people can argue, people can argue very heatedly, but there's not this sense of, uh, you know, people coming to blows or saying, well, I see you standing next to that person over there. So you're my enemy too. I mean, it's just, it's, it's but you know why that is. It's also because you have the voice and you also have the right. visuals. Yes, when right. I can see your face, Yep. I know you're not putting, you know, acid behind those words. Mm-hmm. You're, you're exactly. being sarcastic and yeah. then we laugh it off. Right. Yeah, but if it's just right. straight cold text, yeah. I yeah, think that's where it goes away and yeah. everybody will interpret it in their own filter. And if you're already heated, you're going to read it heat hotter. Yeah. And, it, yeah. it can, and that's the problem. And so it's, it's something that we can't really unwind back, but it does. Yeah. Uh, so many of these conversations, the outrage, the other things feel just so, Point. like this yeah we did but, not need to do this <laughs> and, and there, there's something about having yeah. discourse in a, in a store well it would being face to face with someone sure. will, you know uh, has a lot to do with that but i mean like you, you you'd go to shops and talk to people and, and you could have these conversations and, and people could even like kind of be you know maybe like disparaging a creator to a certain extent but people would go back and forth you know you'd get people sure. who are like ah jonathan hickman eh, and then they'd be like what are you talking about i've been a fan since nightly news and like sure. you know you, you'd, you'd get that and like there was nothing like really nasty about it but right. for whatever reason when it comes on like you know social media it comes off so nasty yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, social media has been extremely valuable to my career mm-hmm. and I've made deep friendships uh, yeah. and bonds with other creators that would never have been possible. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yep. And so you have this weird love hate thing where you're like, I would never have gotten to know a bunch of these respected people in the business yeah. or, or felt like I was part of this bigger thing as much if I didn't have this. Yeah. And yet, and yet, yep. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. There's always that the the it can snap back on you or it has such a weird 
um, duality to it, particularly when things turn heated. I, you know, For sure. comics has such a chip on its shoulder about its place in mm. the the entertainment canon and now more than ever because we're seen as the platform for television and movies instead of you know viable in our own right but the downside of that is a lot of the people in this business seem to forget that they are part of a broader entertainment blanket Mm. and so i'll see creators taking wild pot shots about tv and movies and it's like I know you're pitching your stuff in Hollywood. I know. And that's not to say never be negative or never be critical or whatever else. Just how yeah. don't shit where you eat. Like for yeah. God's sake, man, like you, you <laughs> yeah. don't know a uh, perfect example. So I am just getting started uh, at, at the Udon studio and I go to a couple conventions and I'm out for dinner with a bunch of professionals in, it was like a little, some role-playing game people and board game designers and a couple comic people. It's just like a, a real dog's breakfast of creatives. And mm-hmm. we're sitting around the table chatting and, and the subject comes up, who's the worst art director you've ever worked for or worst editor. And these just heinous, brutal stories are coming around, like just vicious, vicious people tearing stuff down and I'm like loving it. Oh man, everyone's spilling the tea. This yeah. is the greatest thing ever. And then I've got an art, an art director in my head that we had worked for a client and they were just hell on wheels and didn't know what they wanted. And the reference was awful. And they were just, you know, screwing us over left, right and center. And I'm like, I'm going to be part of it. This is going to be so fun. I'm going to tell my story. And I was like building up my, my excitement and two people before me, brings up that person's name and the person in between the two of us goes, that guy was my best man at my wedding. You're a piece of shit. And they just have it out. And it literally right beside me, like no exaggeration. And I thought to myself that that would have been me. Like I would (laughs) have, you'd touch the bullet. Yeah. I absolutely, it could not have been more dramatically, it's ridiculous. And I thought yeah. to myself, and of course the whole conversation broke down and everyone stopped talking about that. And I thought I have learned something this day and I will, I will put that away in my, in my mind and never sure. forget it. Yeah. Someone that you're taking pot shots at someone that you're taking a dump on that's their best friend probably also works in the industry The the, they were someone's best man. They were someone's you know, yep. whatever you do not know, man, you do not know. And, and so mm-hmm. why, why, why are you just, you know, salting the earth? I yeah. don't get it. I, I don't like the, uh, and, and I, if we got onto this, I, I, I thank you for being so candid with us on this. No problem. I think it's something I, I want people to hear this. Cause I think there is this big misunderstanding of us versus them. And I think these kinds of conversations help. Uh, like when yeah. we talk to Jeff and Sean and others about it, it's, um, I, I, there's this odd, uh, pass it forward kind of behavior. And it's like, you know, Hey, these, these customers are attacking me. I don't like it. I'm going to attack the person in in the TV business in the same, you know, heat. And it's like, all we're doing is passing up this negativity up the chain. Well, and I, I get it in the sense of, you know, you're punching upwards. So you're, you feel like you're, you know, yeah, you're justified. You're justified. Yeah. Yeah, Well, movies are huge and TV is huge and you, you know, sure. But you just never know. I think it's just foolish in general. Does yeah. that mean that I I love every movie? No, of course not. 
um, probably the easiest way to tell if I don't like something is if I'm not talking about it ever, yeah. you know, if you're like, geez, Jim never talks about that movie. And you're like, that's not to say I've seen every movie, but it's like, sure. If everyone and their dog is, is railing on something, I probably hated it too. I just don't need you to know that. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter. But, but, you know, you brought up something uh, important though, when, when you're talking about that discussion at the table and, and the yeah. person being very defensive <laughs> of the other person, like, I do think, like, yes, of course people are going to react that way, but I, I think we would all benefit if we were in that position and someone tells a story about, like, this person, like, did this awful thing to under try to understand that. Oh, sure. Empathy all around, right? Yeah, because, yeah. like, my experience with someone, especially if they're my friend, they're not going to treat me horribly. <laughs> Right. You know, like in that way, but maybe they do that to other people. And, and you know, I, I don't mean to get too dark here or anything. Sure, like sure, that, sure. But your this, classic sort of, yeah. Uh, well, they were always nice to me, so they must be nice. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, you know, this is how we got in a position where Eddie Berganza was at DC for as long sure. as he was. Not literally that dinner you had. Right, right, but, right. No, no, you know, but people, yeah. you know, uh, um, throwing up defenses or, or, yeah, hiding people within these systems where they're yeah. able to, yeah, they can, you know, well, they've always been nice to me, so therefore, I will never say a disparaging word or, or um, listen to anything you have to say, right? Yeah. And, and you know, I, it sort of ties back into what I was saying before about mm -hmm. because comics have a chip on their shoulder there's also this weird sense of we're the, we can be the bad boys or we can not have to follow the rules or not be corporate, you know, stick your middle finger up and whatever. And it's like, that'll cost you at some point. Like you, don't, you can do that and you totally should, but don't whine about it later if it comes back to bite you. And yeah, I feel yeah. like the, there are people who want it both ways. They mm -hmm. want to be able to, to give the middle finger to a for authority, to the fans, to, to the corporate structure, to, to the entertainment business and all these things. And they're the, the same people who will get super upset when they're passed over. And yeah. you're like, well, why did you think that was happening? Yeah. Like, what did you think was going to happen? You know? And, and it's not to say that therefore you can never say a disparaging word about anyone or anything. Course, yeah. It's just like, pick your battles, man. Like decide mm -hmm. what's worth the time and the effort and, and, what you think you're going to get from it, you know? That's yeah. very well said. Um, Jim, I want to thank you. You moved to, we went to two hours on a number two. I, I, oh my gosh. <laughs> it was crazy. I, uh, I hope at some point uh, you find yourself in, in Japan and, and I'm there too. And we can go to Nakano Broadway. And, and Oh my gosh. That'd be so amazing. I miss Japan so, so much. Uh, yeah. Last time we went was 2018 and all of our plans around 2020 crumbled. Um, but we, we desperately want to get back. My wife and I love it. I've been there obviously multiple times research for wayward and just because, uh, love the country, love the people, love the food and, and the travel. Um, it is, it is like a longing, like it, yeah. it's kind of crazy. Um, how much I do miss it. Yeah. Yeah. I just conventions in general. I know some people uh, are disparaging of those as well, but I miss the con family. I miss mm. that feeling of camaraderie mm. that comes from these things. And exactly what we were talking about with the, with the comic book store stuff, yeah. those in-person discourses are better. 
They Absolutely. really are. They really are. Yes, I have convention horror stories and I have, you know, people who have been super weird to me in person, but oh, yeah. they're few, much fewer and farther between, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean sure. you know, most of my horror stories all involve later in the evening and people that they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> right. But, uh, right. All right. So, so yeah, yeah, we've got to get over to Japan. I've got to ask. So have you been to the catch a fish restaurant in Shinjuku? I have not been to the catch a fish okay. restaurant. Nice. All right. So that's a that's place sad. we got to go. So that's oh, literally, man, that sounds awesome. You catch a fish and they didn't cut it up. Ah, and, it's so good in front of you. It's crazy. I did do, uh, I did do Tsukiji uh, fish market when it was uh-huh. still, um, in Tsukiji. Uh, and it, and it was the, um, we did the, the, like, as the fresh fish came in, yep. we did the, the auction and then all the restaurants get their fish. And then we walked back with one of the, uh, restaurateurs. And as they opened their sushi stand, we literally got the, yeah. the breakfast sushi, which was yeah. amazing. Warm. Incredible. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. And the sad yeah. part is with, with the pandemic and everything else that, that experience will not happen again now. Yeah. None of it. Like it's all changed. You know, yeah. one of the things that's been super weird, I live in downtown Toronto and in our neighborhood, you know, the neighborhood's changing so rapidly, like restaurants have closed down or stores are, are, you know, closing and changing. And we don't know, like, it's not going to completely fold up, but it just, it's going to be different on the other yeah. side of this. Everything's going to be a little bit different. I think conventions are going to be a little bit different and the creative process is being a little bit different. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been teaching remotely over digital, you know, for over a year and, and there are advantages and disadvantages of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how the entertainment industry and comics and everything else comes out of this along with everyone else, you know? I mean, yeah, I, yeah so many, so many experiences I, I do. Uh, I, I have, very fond memories of restaurants in Shibuya. They're down in kind of the basement yeah. and they're in a tiny little cell to eat. And like, that's not going to, that's that, going to be a long time till that kind of thing comes back. Yeah. 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 Well, Jim, thank you very much for all the time tonight. And yeah, my uh, pleasure. Pleasure. My talking pleasure. To you. Thanks. Um, I know that uh, you guys can get pelted by all sides at yeah. times. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's and, my deal. Yeah. And, and uh, it doesn't mean that, that, yeah, I think it, the discourse uh, is valuable, e- even if we don't all agree. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think I think the worst thing to do is to close ourselves off and and create a fortress and 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 basically be like everything is awful and let's burn it all down because I don't feel like that's ever kind of healthy. You no. know what I mean? No, and it's, so yeah, yeah. But if um. If people have listened and they've enjoyed uh, what I've talked about, you go to my website. I've got a ton of those free blog uh, posts about how to break into comics, how pitches are written, um, all those kinds of things. Uh, it would mean the world to me if people tried out Conan the Barbarian. Working on that book is an absolute dream for me. Uh, you know, 10-year-old me would never, ever have imagined that I would have this opportunity. And I've been putting my heart and soul into it. Corey Smith, who's drawing the book, is drawing some of the best pages of his career. Uh, we're doing the big buildup to issue 300, and I think it is going to be, you know, I'm a little biased, but I think it's one for the ages, and we're all super, super proud of what's being put on the page there, and I hope people give it a shot. We've got one trade paperback out now called Into the Crucible. Uh, Raj Antonio drew it. He kicked the crap out of it. It's a beauty. Um, I've got my Savage Sword story that's in a trade paperback called The Gambler, along with other stories in there. Uh, Serpent War is another, you know, Conan book that I did that I'm really, really proud of. 
Avengers No Surrender, you know, uh, <laughs> Uncanny Avengers, Stars and Garters is the, uh, uh, you know, trade that I did for that. No Road Home, you know, you name it, all kinds of really, really fun projects. Avengers Tech On uh, is coming out starting in August. The Looks Dungeons and Dragons cool. comics have been running since 2014. And although it hasn't been formally announced, no one is surprised to hear I've got more D&D comics in the hopper. So there's five trade paperbacks of that if you want to get caught up on the world's biggest and best role-playing game in yeah. comic book form. Um, lots of cool stuff. Lots of fun things in, in the pipeline. And go buy Wayward. It's out. You can you can get your hands on that. It's an awesome yeah. story. Thank you. Yeah, my creator-owned books, Wayward, Skull Kickers, Glitter Bomb, and yeah. Stone Star, which actually yeah. comes out. Uh, the first trade paperback is coming out from Dark Horse in July. Oh, well. Awesome. People should go check out. There's a lot of material, a lot of good things to immerse yourself in. And Jim, yeah. just, I hope we get to catch up with you again soon. Yeah. Thank you very much. Great.